A word to the wise. We are an explicit podcast tackling content with adult themes as well as entering spoiler territory if you aren't caught up with us. That week, this week, that week, this, this, that week. That would be are you having a stroke? Chapter... <laughs> no, not right now. That would be through chapter 36. So we're talking about chapters 33 through 36. This is our penultimate episode covering Mistborn, The Final Empire by Branderson. there this is cross and i'm that week this week that week this week that week this week i'm pj crossland i'm concerned for your health and i've already called an ambulance so we have to record this quickly before they get to you there's no way we're getting through it all that's all i'm <laughs> saying and we are words and whiskey a podcast for veteran and novice readers alike we tackle fiction novels and love to talk about what we're drinking you should think of us as your intoxicating weekly book club and i want to remind people that on on the top of this episode, a couple of things. One, PJ is a new reader to the scene, so it's important that we give him kindness in anything that he says. That's are part people of the shitting on me? People aren't shitting on you; they're shitting on us collectively. <laughs> ah, okay. <laughs> so it's important to note that every once in a while, we're drinking while we're doing this. We get we get mistakes wrong. We get things wrong. We eventually correct them, generally, including a correction that I have from a previous episode that hasn't been brought up to me or anything like that inside of this episode that we'll make. It's fine. Don't worry about it. But mm-hmm. I also want to say that if you like nerdy corrections, go watch Dropout TV's Um Actually, because that sounds exactly like your thing. I'm going to I'm going to cross promote something else to uh, dissuade from making fun of us. Sometimes we get small details wrong. I'm sorry that we accidentally were talking about Darrow being 6'3 for a while when he was actually 6'11. My bad. We corrected that two episodes later. Uh, yeah. Full rant. <laughs> Over. Okay. <laughs> that was episode you're reading five. The you- Leave us alone. You're reading the YouTube comments again, aren't you, Crossland? <laughs> Fucking, I love, I love everyone who listens to us through YouTube. I absolutely mm-hmm. love it. I've came to realize I commented on the very first thing that I've ever commented on YouTube before. And... I was it was a very like good, well thought out comment of like the reason that I like something and the reason that I appreciated something inside of the Wheel of Time TV show. And I said, this take isn't for everyone. So bear with me. And I like prefaced it with that being like, you don't need to agree with me. And still people were like underneath the comments being like, I think that's fucking wrong. And I was like, that's not I don't care. That wasn't the (laughs) point. The point was, I wanted to voice that I liked this decision as opposed to other people who don't like that decision. And that's okay. I understand where you're coming from. I just don't agree. Don't need to yeah. Don't need to shout about it. And that, in combination with this other comment that came up on our Fifth Red Rising episode, I was like, love you, dude. Really appreciate you like listening. We do correct it. Mm-hmm. Give us time. And understand that people are fallible. I mean, yeah. But we're more fallible than a lot of people. True. Uh, <laughs> we fuck up. Pretty regularly, I'd say, on a, on a know, pretty, pretty regular basis. But you guys listening might not get all of that because we also go through and comb our episodes, like in our like our editing process. We we make sure to clean things up. We'll take breaks and we'll go out. off into yeah. we'll go off into random MCR tangents. Minutes, yeah. Was it twenty minutes? Jesus. Mm-hmm. And we're also drinking like constantly throughout this whole thing. That's kind of the premise of the show. So we get off off topic and sometimes we have to rein it in after the fact. So 
we know what we say. And sometimes if we like catch that, we fuck up. We'll just cut it out entirely. And um, sometimes we'll leave it in and then we'll address it later. We promise. We promise. Yeah. <laughs> and if we don't feel free to bring it up to us, but the way you do it is important. I'm cool with whatever brash way you want to bring it up, but just make sure that we haven't addressed it in the, in the future. Yeah. Also true. Listen to it all. Yeah. Okay, cool. PSA right. out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> so today is our ninth episode, our penultimate episode, discussing Mistborn, the Final Empire by Brandon Sanderson, and we are going to chat about chapters 33 through 36. This is the beginning of the so-called Sanderlanch, as people like to term the climaxes of Brandon Sanderson's books. And I feel very rude for interrupting it, actually. I, I called you this morning, or rather, we inter we decided to call each other, and someone answered, and someone called this morning, and who I almost who? said, read to the end, <laughs> because I was like, maybe we could fit this all in one episode reasonably. It'd be a long one, but we could do it. And at the same time, I was like, you know, I kind of want to leave you on the cliffhanger that I'm leaving you on, so, hmm, yeah, I don't know. It didn't settle didn't sell that until right now well mm-hmm. before but you know so before we get into that though let's talk about what we're drinking pj what are you kicking us off here with i'm drinking a cocktail that you sent to me actually we were discussing i, w- I was going shopping and i'm like look just walking through the grocery store and i'm like i i i think you were in my head like you were in my ears the entire time i was in the grocery store correct that totally um, makes sense and just idly, I asked you what I should drink tonight, and you sent me this recipe, and I had most of it, but I needed uh, seltzer water. So you sent me the Fernet Fizz. I made a double, just because I know how we go through cocktails and how quickly, and it was a pretty small cocktail by the by the sound of it. So I made a double batch for what it's worth. Two ounces of bourbon. I used the pinhook bourbon that Crossland's been talking up for a while. I finally saw it on my liquor store shelves um, you can hear us talk about the pin hook at length in our devil's cuts if you are one of our patrons correct we actually did a taste test side by side this the devil's cut for this, this episode one. specifically this one yeah so two ounces of bourbon one ounce of frenet bronca and thank you for helping me get rid of this fucking frenet bronca i'm trying we've I'm trying, had man. it for so long i can't wait until you want There's, to buy another one for a specific cocktail like Nope, I'm done with Fernet. I'm beginning to like Fernet, actually, in a strange I kind of am, too. Specifically, in this cocktail. In this cocktail. I think the trick is pairing it with lemon. We keep interrupting you. Go through your cocktail. No, it's all good. All right, all right. I'll start from the beginning. Once more. Two ounces of pinhook bourbon. Ah, fuck. (laughs) Two ounces of pinhook bourbon. One ounce of Fernet Branca. One ounce of simple syrup. One ounce of simple syrup. Half an ounce of lemon juice. One egg white, four dashes of orange bitters, and I should have done a, a dry shake, but I put ice in there first. So shook it all. What? <laughs> that's probably what actually affected your color. We were talking about this earlier. That's that's probably actually what yeah. That's probably what yeah. it was. Yeah. So should have done a dry shake. Didn't. So shook that and then poured it into a white wine glass and then topped it off with Lacroix Pure. So just seltzer water. Yeah, yeah. This is really cool. When you pour the, the seltzer on top of the egg white, that's when it creates that fizz, that bubble, that foam on top, especially mm-hmm. if you dry shake it. I fucked up a couple of times yep. and I made a couple of fizzes. This didn't do it. This didn't do it right. I think that's why you right. got the color. 
because that also happened to me with that the strawberry sovereign that i made when we did it on the episode and i was like it looks so pale and awful and that's yeah. because fucking didn't do the dry shake and i didn't get like the characteristic foam of a fizz so i'm wondering if that has to do with it i'm wondering if it's i don't know i opened the can of Lacroix a little bit early so maybe it degassed a little bit more than it should have whatever it was i don't know but it tastes really good it's this herbal lemony sweet thing that tastes really good i i've only had a couple sips of it so far let me let me taste it right now so yeah it almost tastes like a little bit more of an herbal iced tea. I think that's how I would describe it in like the best possible way. It's really, really good. That's so interesting because mine also has like a wee, an interesting iced tea-ish flavor. That's actually kind of what I was thinking. So the same kind of like herbal notes, which we're both using Pinhook in ours. So that's probably a part of it. That's probably a part of that base flavor profile of the whiskeys. You're using bourbon. I'm using the rye. But what mm-hmm. are you following that up with before we jump anywhere else? Aslan. I'm super excited. I'm so glad that you did this fizz, by the way. Like, yeah, I was going to make it at some point. This is from both of our cocktails are actually either from or variations on how to how to cocktail by America's Test Kitchen, um, which is a fantastic. Okay. It is the, in my head. It is the best intro cocktail book ever. Teaches you how to make everything. Teaches you the reasons that you would do certain things. Um, not the most. It has a ton of historical drinks and like some prohibition stuff and some interesting history. Not the most deep book, but a wonderful book to get you started. Yeah, I'm I might seek that out. You're following it up with Aslan Brewing Company or Aslan Beer Company collaboration with Fürst Weissick out of Berlin. Volcano sauce, sour ale brewed with blackberries, blueberries, milkshake, sugar and vanilla. Hmm. So nice sour volcano sauce. That is a really cool looking can. I love right. Aslan's can art. It's it's a sweet pastry sour. <laughs> like, what else do you want? It's really, really good. Okay, I'm going to hop into my cocktail. So I am having a spin on the Chancellor, which is a cocktail that is generally made with scotch. I didn't have any scotch, and I kind of want to do this pinhook experiment and kind of play around with it a little bit. So I've spun off the Chancellor into something that I'm calling the Lord Prelin. And so after Tavidian here, our character who dies at the end of this chapter, we've we've already named a cocktail, the Survivor of Hatson. We'll probably name another one after him at the end of this, something like that. We've thought, we're thinking, we're trying to stir on something to give Kelsier appropriately, but this is what we're doing today is the Lord Prelin. So what I'm what I'm drinking here is two ounces of rye whiskey as opposed to the scotch. I'm having the pinhook, uh, one ounce tawny port half ounce of dry vermouth, one bar spoon of simple syrup or one teaspoon. It's about the same. And two dashes of orange bitters stirred with ice served without the ice. What's interesting is when I tried this cold, I was meh on it. Like it's a good drink. It's complex. But now that it's started to warm up, it's better. It's wider. Interesting. Like it woke up. I mean, that's that's what cold does. Yeah. It'll suppress flavors. So, yeah, it, it really suppressed the flavor. The rye comes through so much more now. And it was cutting through the port before, but now I'm getting the roundness of the port. I'm getting the the full mouthfeel of that side of the cocktail. And the rye and some of the spices come out there and the simple syrup. And, like, just that touch of sweet that isn't super necessary. I'd almost be curious as to what it tasted without it. Like, I'd almost do a try to see if you needed it at all. 
Yeah. Interesting. Uh, I'm following I'm following that up with Flying Machines Roswell 1954 Vanilla Porter. It is it looks like a haunted landing of a UFO like landing on the grass but it's got an airplane inside which is just fucking ridiculous. It's really solid. It's a great I wanted it I picked a porter out because we talk about IPA so much. We've talked about this previously. I wanted to mix it up a little bit and pick a vanilla yeah. porter. Yeah. So that's that's the gamut on drinks. With that, we move into PJ's predictions. Mm-hmm. So this week, <laughs> we're going to pay off a number of them, which is why I'm yes. making such a big deal out of it, of course. So the first one here, PJ, I'm going to read the question. You'll read the answer, of course. The Lord Ruler having this massive soothing effect of the, on this populace is certainly a little thing to note here that we don't want to skip over. If he can do something like that, what other things do you think he can do? And you didn't really answer the immediate question, but you did pose kind of a different question in answer. Like, yeah. Pose your answer. And, and it was wrong. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'll right. say that right away. I'm drinking for this one. But my answer was along the lines of this is interesting to me. And I'm curious if this is an active power or if it's something more passive or even somehow imbued on Kredik Shah itself. So, yep. I follow, I've continued to follow that thread of like, Alimantic powers being imbued upon non-sentient objects. And I think even even later in this episode, I'll talk about my sort of thought process on the Inquisitor's eyes and whether or not that falls into this or whether it's just, hey, those things are fucking metal. Maybe they're the maybe they're the source. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah, not. Not answered, but also the way I did answer it was wrong. So that's a drink for you. With that unless next- unless it's on his horse or his carriage. My fucking how the stable is central to the to Kretik shot itself. Nope. Moving on. The <laughs> bit of information here is interesting. That of manipulating bones and corpses. Of course, where actually we end up talking about Chandra in kind of the side here. We don't know that term yet. But I asked thoughts, and you said that it could help explain Lord Renew, but it doesn't explain his mind. Something fucky is up here. This is interesting because I think <laughs> that we, you are right, but you didn't fully answer the question in the way that it was meant to be answered. So we're going to push on this one, which means we both drink in any circumstance like this. It's, yeah. not, a, it's not a zero-sum game. It's a combination of asker and answerer. Next one mm-hmm. here. There's a reflection as the Pac-Men are loading and sharing a private conversation about Kelsier and how his legend has grown to almost supersede that of the Rebellion. And my question for you is, do you think Kelsier is a good choice for a ruler? What do you make of their conversation? So my answer was, I don't know if he's a great pick for leader. He seems too well-suited for being on the streets rather than pulling some strings for, from a boardroom. But I don't know if there's a better candidate for rallying the people. He's one of the best. He... He's the one with the best shot, but he's not the best pick, if that makes sense. Kelsier's dead, so fuck you. Yeah, <laughs> that's the shittiest reason why I have to drink for this. We had to get rid of this one somehow, and this was the only way that that was going to happen. I think I agree with you in context and in terms of what you're what you're saying, but mm-hmm. I'm giving that one to you. Fine. People can disagree in the comments, but as long as they do so politely. Not be mean. Be mean to Crossland for this one. So next up here is one that we just want to address. So, Marsh's note details an interesting question. Where does the power difference of an Inquisitor come from? Why are they so much stronger than traditional Alamancers, and how do they recruit 
the Mistborns into their agency. You said... My my answer was, I think they're made, not found. And the reason why we decided to address this, as opposed to actually like make a decision on it, is because there's nothing contextual saying that they are strictly made. But there's like it feels like there's heavy implications of that. And how do you how do you answer that with that sort of amount of information? Yeah, so we're we're gonna keep this one on the list for the time being, but there is an implication based on what the Lord Ruler says that they are hard to replace, which makes it seem as though they are replaceable, but how does that work? How could he replace them? Like, does and, he need does it need to be a mistborn that's like taken and found and turned into an inqui- inquisitor? Is that the potential fate of Vin? If so, why was Kelsier not like taken and like molded into an inquisitor? If like there's some sort of mind breaking that goes into it, I don't like. There's a lot of questions here, but it doesn't quite answer whether or not they're made or recruited. I don't know, but there does seem to be a bit of manufacturing that happens. Look at their eyes. Look at their hands. I don't know. There's yeah. something unnatural. For sure. For sure. It is, like like you said, I, I think that you nailed it in all contexts. Like, we have ideas, but we don't have an answer. And that's why I wanted to bring this one up, is because I think it's unique versus a number of the other predictions, which are pretty... Like, we're trying to approach this kind of a la carte style in, in its own way. Like, we're getting be- bits and pieces, but we haven't gotten the full answer yet. We've gotten more questions, to be honest, than we have answers, so... Mm-hmm. That's why we wanted to bring it up. We're going to keep it, but we wanted to just re-mention it. Right. With that, we go into chapter 33. We return to the crew sans Kelsier, who have been locked in clubs of shops since the reveal about the tragic death of March that we experienced at the end of last week. But Vin takes this moment to recognize something that, in hindsight, is kind of tragic, but on the outset is really hopeful. She hopes to be a part of Kelsier's next crew, next job, everything and the like. It's another one of those warming moments where Vin has moved from looking to escape every room to staring around at all of her friends and not wanting to leave or for it to end. And I just wanted your thoughts. Yeah. This scene evokes a lot of truth from the crew, I think. Like, we get to see their true colors a little bit more. There's sort of the tough guy talk earlier, and I don't know if tough guy is the right way to put it, but there's the talk earlier about how they felt duped almost by the idea that they wouldn't be getting their payout that they were promised from the beginning. But in the end, they all kind of would have done this job anyway. Mm-hmm. And this like this job is so much more meaningful that it was worth whatever risk that was involved. And this had amazing, like incredible risk with very little reward. Not that they weren't like they were promised a reward and Mm -hmm. maybe that's what brought most of them in. But to know that in hindsight, they would have done it anyway. That's what's really warming at the end of this, right? (laughs) Like we're not we're nowhere near that yet in terms of narrative. But right now I've made reference to it a couple of times as we've been going through the series. But there have been moments and stopping points where we've been in clubs, a shop or we've been at a bar. We've been hanging out with characters and they've been drinking. They've been having a a good time. And I think the last time that I talked about this was like our episode seven or something like that, when the crew is together and happy and rejoicing in a in success right before they get the news of the failure that is Yeadon taking the army out, right? So that was the last time where everyone was happy, everyone had a second to kind of be focused in. And I wanted to make sure to clarify that to say this is everyone at their best. And right now, 
we've got everyone around. They're all happy to still be there. And Vin, in particular, doesn't want this to end, but she's noticing that change for the first time ever and things starting to resolve Mm -hmm. and that to start to shift. And yeah, like if we look at the beginning of the book, it's it's amazing how well she's assimilated into this group Mm -hmm. from there. Like that point was not not approachable. (laughs) She was Mm -hmm. not not a team player. For the most part, like, yeah, she had to work in teams like she had to work for crews, but she had more in common with Golem at that point than she does with who she is. now. <laughs> exactly. And now she's basically found her family for the lack of a better term, or maybe for exactly the right description of that term. Like She has found her family and now it's slipping from her. And that's that's tough to deal with. Yeah, oh, man. And it- they're cooped up, of course, not having the best time when our boy, Kelsier, finally steps back. It's brutal to call our boy at this time, at this point when he dies. Dead our boy. boy. <laughs> Dead boy. Our boy, our martyr, finally steps back through the doors, exhausted from Peter dragging his way from the pits of Hathson, where we saw him at the end of last week. Kelsier, of course, explains this to everyone, what he's done, destroying the pits, pulling them, and explaining the reason that Alamancers couldn't do it as well, and how that will set back the final Empire's mining of Atium for centuries. The implications here, of course, are wide-reaching, but the group is of the opinion that they should be pulling out right now of the heist in this whole plan instead of committing further. This is an interesting turning point because Kelsier obviously wants to turn the screw the other way. Yeah. I love the way that Branderson does humor on a really kind of subtle scale, but it's like it's prevalent. There's quite a bit of these sort of humorous outbursts and the one here is the fact that breeze is kind of going off on kelsier hyper hyperbolically about like the stupid things he could have gotten into like stealing the cloak off the off the lord ruler's back and just the the air getting sucked out of the room when he quietly answers no i destroyed the pits of hassan (laughs) fuck he set up a good group of characters that way where like breeze can say something like that and you totally believe it and then kelsier's like now here's the honest truth and everyone there's always the air that Kelsier might be joking, but this, because he gets down into that quiet, serious mode, you're like, oh, that's that's resonant. That's real. And everyone else also recognizes that. So, so many I find often in inexperienced fantasy when I read it or inexperienced novelist in general, this status play of seeing where the power is inside of a room or a conversation is so important. And this is a great example of that. And Kelsier's ability because of his sort of prominence and title being able to suck that out of the room and kind of take all the power away from everyone and make it so they're listening to whatever he has to say next Yeah. here. Of course, uh, Kelsier has to go to bed because he's fucking tired from pewter dragging <laughs> as as any reasonable Allomancer would know. Of course, we are reasonable we- Allomancers. But as I was saying, as I was transitioning through talking about the distances and things like that, the next day, Vin and Sazed share a conversation about the 11th medal and its potential and how the Keepers have heard no mention of it. This poses a question to us, of course. Where did Kelsier hear of the 11th medal? How could he know its use? And do you have any ideas about that? I'm going to let you in on something, PJ. You're making a prediction for a short story that we're going to stuff in at the end of this trilogy. So we're oh, going interesting. to answer here. There's a short story that I have not put on the okay. docket yet. I was curious why you like high, like in our document, he italicizes things that are going to be predictions that we're going to address later. And this one's italicized. And I was curious why that makes sense. This is specific um, to the 11th medal of which I literally just read this week. Like he doesn't know the use clearly. 
like you mentioned, but as far as how he knows about it, that's something that I never even like considered. I'd be curious if it's anything to do with like a, as a result of burning gold in a weird way. Like maybe he got into conversations with an alternate itself. And like he mentioned that he doesn't think gold is really useful at all, but maybe he's just hiding that for some reason. There's always another secret. There's always another secret. It's Kelsier's catch line, right? Yeah. So like if fuck. If somehow he's getting external information through gold that's giving him access to information on this 11th metal, which Vin posits is an alloy of gold later on in this section, that it's not inconceivable. That's where I'm, that's where I'm at on it is for some reason he's hiding the fact that he's getting actually important information through the use of gold okay all right i'm in mm-hmm. i just wanted to make sure that we we got that down because we will be reading that short story after i read it this week we're interrupted inside of the next day by taze another tin eye who is on the watch saying that more people are being gathered in the square for execution they quickly wake kelsier he immediately takes the blame after all it does appear to be a reaction to what he did in the pits do you agree with him Interestingly enough, we actually get this answer, the answer kind of in general in this section, but do you agree with the way that he thinks about it himself? Of course. Like, what else would it be, (laughs) man? Like, Kelsier is high profile enough. I would assume the Lord Ruler is just kind of waiting for something like this to happen before, like, stomping on him like a cockroach, you know? And I... He's high profile enough that I don't believe that he's acting like under the no- under the nose of the Lord Ruler without being noticed at all. I I think I'll get into this quite a bit later, but I think that's ultimately why the Inquisitors seem so eager to kill him because like they have the resources, they have the ability, they probably explicitly know exactly who's doing all this shit. They know it's him. But the Lord Ruler isn't, like, giving them the go-ahead for reasons that this is a whole web of shit. This is a whole web of shit that I'm going to get into. But it all relates later on. But just the idea that the Lord Ruler is kind of counting on the fact that the nobles call themselves every hundred years or so. Kelsier's letting, like, kind of ushering that along in, in time properly. So, like, if the Lord Ruler isn't threatened truly... By anything that Kelsier is doing on a personal level, why fuck with it if it's helping him out in some meager way? So that's an interesting perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Because he's above it all, right? Like he's like he is not threatened (laughs) at all. As we see later, he is literally we've we've like made jokes about like the, the possible perception of the Lord Ruler. And when he shows up. He's as invincible as they said. He's as invincible as the legends. Like, yeah. Wow. Shocking. It was. We'll, we'll get, yeah. We'll, we'll get. get we'll get. We'll definitely get more of that. But, but this this answer for me, like my reasoning for this answer is so tied to what happens later that it's hard to really make a not. Well, um, and, and we get the strict answer later. This wasn't his plan to like, this wasn't actually a response to the pits. This was him catching something else and punishing something else. This is not the pits, which is what Kelsey was kind of doing. I feel like I missed oh, that. What was because the Lord ruler doesn't know about the pits yet. 
that happens later when they're up uh, on the spire. He doesn't know about the pits. So what so, was this about? Do we know that? This is just a trap that he had laid for Kelsier. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So this is... That this actually is fucks with my answer. That entirely does, fucks well, with my answer. No, the reason that I think that it was reasonable with your answer is because Kelsier believes this holistically, right? Like, he believes that that's the reason and is, like, led into this trap regardless. But then we get the spook side of the trap. We get the renew side of the trap, which, mm-hmm. you know, upon seeing those prisoners, most of the members jump into action. Kelsier knows that he needs to intervene and save them, feeling responsibility falling on his shoulders. Like we're saying with the Pits of Hatson thing, he's thinking that this is why he needs to do this. Well, in fact... This is all actually a trap. Ham heads off to rally with some troops, but before the dust really settles, Kelsier and Vin share what will be their final exchange. We only know this in post, so it's important that we talk about it. This is ultimately why I group these chapters and not not leaving you on the cliffhanger that you, that you mentioned a little bit later is because I think it's important that we talk about these moments in sequence. We talk about this final yeah. conversation that they have and his death. So, So final note here. You still have some things to learn about friendship, Finn. I hope someday you learn what they are. And that is, like, Kelsier has generally been very approachable and very kind and forgiving. And this is harsh. That is a harsh reality to be thrown in her face. It's very real, intense. What do you think he was going for by saying this? I think I he pretty explicitly mentions that he let her stop him earlier in that moment where uh, he was going to run off for the, for the garrison or for the army. But I, th- I think what he's saying is that sometimes you need to take dire risks for your friends, even if you know it's going to be your downfall. Like, putting them above you is sometimes the right thing to do. Is the nature of friendship to some degree. Like that is yeah. an extremely close friendship. Especially with Spook. Like that's that's our counter and renew. Yeah, exactly. So this is this is one of the times. And it's easy to it's easy it would be very easy for Kelsier to or from Vin's perspective, I guess. Uh we know a little bit more context later on for Kelsier's perspective, but from Vin's perspective, it'd be really easy for Kelsier to just say, I can't risk myself here because I have too many big things balancing right now that I need to take care of. So I can't risk my life and let those fall to the wayside as well, which is a valid point. And I'm trying to decide whether or not it shoots it like that, that idea and that lesson shoots itself in the foot when we learn that this was like Kelsey's plan the entire time. To basically sacrifice himself. It's it's so interesting, especially when we learn that this is his plan the entire time, right? It's it's an interesting conflict of perspective, right? Vin's perspective has always been on survival. Even with friends, she's still hellbent on preserving the friends that she can save. And so in this moment, it feels like another moment where she can intervene with Kelsier, be like, hey, keep yourself alive. We can't keep Spook alive. It, it's unfortunate it's- we can't do anything about it. We're going to lose them. I think it's a step further than what, than what you just said. And I know you, yeah, you agree, right. but that she can save without risking herself, her own life. Right, right. Like without yeah. sacrificing herself, what she can save. And like, I there's think that's that, there's that caveat. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's that's Kelsier's counterpoint entirely. Totally agree. Kelsier's counterpoint is this is the moment when you step up. You've got like a fucking golden halo of nuclear energy. <laughs> it's hilarious. <laughs> This is the point when 
Kelsier's really like step up and stand out. This is your time. This is when you stand up for people. This is when you take the risk that exceeds yourself. And that's really great from his perspective, really hard lesson to her. And I think that's what like different. I, I, I internally make the joke that this is like the Obi-Wan sacrifice, right? But this is more than the Obi-Wan sacrifice because this is a tougher lesson that he's imparting is the importance of friendship and the people that you care about and what you sacrifice for the people that you care about. Mm-hmm. Even if it was his plan the entire time, he is pushed to maybe execute it sooner because of the situation. And that's kind of, that's my perspective. It's not perfect. It's not holistic. There, there are definitely other things, but that's, that's the way I think about this phrase. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Yeah. God. It's so good. It's so good. This, the end of Sanderson's books are so good. It's all because he does all the prep work. Cool. All right. Fucking love. I love that last interaction. So that's ultimately, by the way, why I decided not to end it with Kelsier's death or with this like end of this chapter, by the way. Yeah. Is because of this juxtaposition that I think is really important for us to spend time and break down. Then begins something within the fandom that is referred to as the Sanderlanch. We whiplash, kind of, from perspective to perspective with kinetic action carrying us through the beat of the rest of this chapter. Kelsier downs vials and tears apart soldiers, mashing them into the ground and freeing some prisoners before he's confronted by an Inquisitor, metal spikes for eyes shining underneath the brown cloak over his head. And it's all a trap, once again. I just want to, real quick, this is fucking... Star Wars Episode Six, like this is the beginning of that, but the opposite, mm-hmm. like walking into the trap as opposed to setting the trap yourself. And I love that for characters quite a bit. Yeah, and it's yeah. got that same like disposition of treating the soldiers like meat, <laughs> like just like props. <laughs> like, yep, <laughs> you fucking throw Boba Fett into the Sarlacc. It's the same idea. <laughs> same shit. Yeah. Same shit, but. Sanderlanch, I like that term. All I'm thinking is like Sanderland Ranch, I guess, is like what that what my brain goes to. I don't know why. Okay. All right. It's splitting it for some reason. Fuck. I don't know. It's I don't interesting. Know. The Sanderland Ranch. But this scene is just so like perfectly cinematic. The way it's jumping perspectives. Like it, it is in my head. I would liken it to maybe maybe not quite with as much action, but the way it's it flows very much like the single shot Avengers action sequence from the first movie. It's actually uh, a great call. Yeah. Yeah. Where it's just follow like the camera's just following and like jumping to and from each character without actually cutting. I don't know. I loved it. The eh, fucking everything about this this story, man, like, thank you, but fuck you for getting me into shit like this. <laughs> again, appreciate it. I'm glad. I'm glad that this, you know, I, I've said it before and I'll say it again. We had four incredible picks for what we we're going to do next. Ultimately, a tiebreaker very close between Mistborn and the First Law. And I'm glad we get to do this. I'm glad we get to talk about Mistborn. I'm very glad that I was encouraged to read the second era. And so now we're covering that. But I really love Brandon's action because it is so cinematic. This is, this is fucking screenwriting one one here to me. Like this is stage direction and intent and moments. And he kills that blend of filmic TV 
like cinematography with mm. book writing. It's so good. Does he have a background in it? No. Interesting. I know. <laughs> you would you would think he does. <laughs> this is technically, I think, his eighth or ninth novel. I think. I think in order of that he'd written, but not published. He he was published on his eighth novel, if I remember correctly. Elantris was his first one. This is his second published book. So, mm-hmm. as like a twenty eight, twenty nine year old, again making me very sad. <laughs> yep. But. Yeah, it's it's so good. So good. I described it as a whiplash. That's not right. It's it but it does it does feel jarring and intentional. Like whiplash gives it this overcorrection feeling, but it's meant to like pull you around the scene. It's it's a small detail, but during the confrontation with the Inquisitor, I really appreciate the smirk that accompanies the line from him saying, I won the draw to kill Kelsier. Gives it this like sinister undertone. I I really appreciate that as though it was insignificant enough to not require more than one of them, but also a prize to be one to be the one to put down the survivor of Hathson. It's so un vile. Yeah, I think I entirely agree with you on your point of like the insignificance of the threat. I think I also believe that the Inquisitors probably wanted to take him down for a long time. Like I mentioned before, finally now the Lord Ruler is giving them the go-ahead. And I think, fuck, the Lord Ruler, like I mentioned, seemed to kind of build it into his calendar that the noble class kind of has to call themselves every hundred years or so, every century. And Kelsier's helping that along. He's starting this house war. And he's not really posing a real threat to the Lord Ruler himself. In a cosmic sense, I guess. Why bother spending the time and effort to like squash him when he's weirdly helping him out? The the Inquisitors. Really yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I'm 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 getting some weird thoughts on, on the Lord Ruler and like what he is. But it's hard to and what he knows, right? Like there's shit like that. Yeah. Mm. Exactly. But we get some later information. That tells us that the Inquisitors seem to be a little bit more driven by r- rules as a like as opposed to as opposed to making decisions based on like what's best for the realm or what's best for the city or but what's best for the Lord Ruler or whatever. Like they they have a set of rules and they're following them. They they kind of seem like darker or maybe not really even darker versions of the judges from Judge Dredd. Is- I think such an apt comparison, right? Because if you think about it, the judges in Judge Dredd or in Dredd, highly recommend, Dredd. by the way, if you yep. watch Alex Garland, I mean, not Alex Garland, but really it's Alex Garland's Dredd. I think it was directed by somebody else, but technically I think that director in the commentary bailed midway through and Alex Garland, the writer, had to pick it up. And that's when Alex Garland was given directorial creds. He did devs. He did ex machina he did fucking devs number of things that we fucking love. yeah that's deb started the Dude. show we talked about that a couple of times deb started yep. the show yep. so but yeah so uh, using using the judge dread comparison i think is immaculate because there's a almost pseudo religious thing there with the judges with the way that they kind of adhere to the law and treat that as the holy book in their own rights. And I think here, obviously, they've the the Inquisitors, as we get a peek behind the curtain, are very much like the enforcers of the religion in a crazy way. Like they are it's so interesting. It's so cool. Yeah. 
Yeah. Yeah. You get a picture into the final empire in a big way here. So it just, it, it feels like they're the ones that this is for, you know, it doesn't feel like the Lord ruler really gives a shit at all about these uprisings or about these infractions upon their society because he's more or less not a part of the society. Again, I think that this gets back to our differential that we we had this conversation, I think, in episode eight or seven about Tavidian, right, as Lord Prelin, as like the Pope, basically, in its own kind of way. I don't think he gets enough mm-hmm. attention in this novel to honestly like call him something like that. But from titles, we can call him the Pope-like person. And the Lord Ruler is God, truly. And God is indifferent and non-caring until it's confronted directly with him from his angels. We could call the Inquisitors. You know, like, it's it's a stretch, of course, but, like, if you start to make those parallels, it's very interesting with a physical religion. So, ah, man, it is, mm, it's, ooh, ah, dude, dude was on to <laughs> something here. So, of course, this melee continues. Ham soldiers arrive as backup, breathes, soothes the warriors out of combat, convincing some ska and noblemen to leave. And Vin lends her help as well, listening into that and and thinking about the idea of like there being other ways to get people out of the situation. We cut back to Kelsier's perspective and all while he's fighting, he hears Ellen Venture shouting for Valette trying to help renew, trying to help the house renew, trying to get to the bottom of the situation in the most noblemanly way possible before finally engaging in one with an inquisitor with a fierce before kelsier finally engages one-on-one with a fierce all right let's do it but that all right let's do it then is such an interesting it's it's such a there's so many fighty words that are used in this last page of this chapter yeah fighty words fighty words they're fighty words they're they are fighty words but it's it's so much action and so much scene setting and progression that all culminates into this. And this is like the perfect endpoint for a section for us. And I was genuinely surprised. I know you've talked about that quite a bit already, but I was genuinely surprised that this wasn't like the end of a section for us. I heavily considered adding these pages on to last week and like dividing up chapters a little bit different. I feel like that would have made this week weird. What it would have done is it would have changed. We would have put chapter 33 on the end of last week, right? And then we would put put 34 through the end on this week. Okay. So we would have had a much longer stretch to round out this conclusion. And that has its benefits. It has its weaknesses because I think that the curiosity going into the next section is huge, even though it's only 40 pages. Like, even right. though it's not that much, I think it's worth it. Could you have imagined adding another chapter to last week's episode? Well, not <laughs> under the circumstances in which we recorded, but in theory, based on the notes, yes, I could totally imagine another chapter. Oh, yeah. But recording yeah, it fair. the way that we did, fuck no. Heads up, apologies. We did great, considering my state. <laughs> that was, PJ was upset with me. <laughs> not that not that he vocalized that directly, but you could hear it when I was editing it. It was like, oh, this is my <laughs> fault. <laughs> my bad. Because my skin crawled. I was not mad. I was not mad at you. No, I was but not you upset were, with you, you at all. Were, you were edging on some questions of being like, why the fuck are you asking me this? <laughs> Thank God I got to clean out the last hour. <laughs> but The last hour. The last fifth of the episode. It's true. It's true. I gotta flip it, what, what did it come out to? Like two hours and... 2.15. 15 minutes? All right. So yeah. less than half of what we recorded. 
correct, which is wild. All right. So we go into chapter 34 here. We lead off with a logbook section. It's quick, flash in the pan. Just a very brief section. I never wanted to be feared. If I regret one thing, it is that fear I have caused. Fear is the tool of tyrants. Unfortunately, when the fate of the world's in question, you use whatever tools are available. That is so wild because it also fits with the Lord Ruler's idea and mm-hmm. the way that he does things. And it's just, it, yeah, it's previous millennia of, of rulership. Yeah. This meshes pretty well with this sort of emo, sad boy Lord Ruler that we see going forward. I mean, it, maybe that's why his soothing aura is like just oppressive depression. And I'm pretty sure, canonically, anybody influenced by influenced by that aura has disintegration by the cure just going on a loop in their head. The album or the song? The album. The whole album. The full album. All right. <laughs> the so there's some upbeat moments, but like mostly it's down. <laughs> mostly down. <laughs> mostly down. <laughs> you got love song in there, but that's that's really good. <laughs> no, I, I feel that. That it's it's such an intensely it's a it's a really philosophical question. It's the, it's again the question of like how do you lead? Do you lead through fear? Do you lead through being the one at the front of the line? Do you lead through pressing forward through circumstances which again is something that like Sazed focuses on a little bit later the the idea of belief and faith it all kind of fits it it twists into the right spot yeah yeah i agree cool the scene setting for this chapter is fairly simple and i think very elegant the idea of this red sun as a backdrop ash falling people running and dying all the while the two powers begin to fight the Inquisitor and Kelsier, and there's this fleeing crowd and all these sounds and movement and action. You can imagine the, the crowd fleeing the camera shots as they move, but the two beginning to clash. It feels like a Jedi battle. I mean, like, I can't think of any yeah. better examples right now. It feels like the beginning of two Jedi facing off in the middle of a crowd of people. It, it, fuck, man. I don't know why. I just keep thinking about adaptations throughout. Yeah. Yeah, this book. It's a, we, it's a fine we talked analogy. about it. We talked about it a ton during Red Rising, but I feel like we haven't talked about it so much during Mistborn. But it's still been in my head. Like, how would this look on screen? I think this would be like out, like just a back focused slow motion drone shot of like the of the whole square. Interestingly enough, I imagine it differently. I think okay. low to the okay. ground, Ridley Scott, you watch people's feet, you watch them move, you see like panning up, and as the people split, that's when you come into focus with people already fighting each other. So that's Okay, so so that that shot for me is the introduction of the Lord Ruler walking in. Sure. Yeah. <laughs> that and that uh, makes sense. That's a similar yeah. comparison. I'm just thinking of like the last duel is filmed kind of similarly in a couple of different I haven't scenes. seen so that yet. like Oh, it's so good. So good. Anyway, you're right. The slow-mo dra- drone scene, like you can totally see it like panning up over top of the crowd as well. You can you can see there are so many different ways to visualize this moment inside the square. And that's eventually known as the Survivor's Square inside mm-hmm. this chapter or after this chapter. But the combat between the two here, I think, is absolutely incredible. Kelsier, Kelsier's use of the final Empire soldiers basically as weapons against the Inquisitor is magnificent. 
his ability to like pull their armor and fling them around and like use them as jumping off and pulling points is incredible. I think it really accentuates his power and elemency too, and his his specification, even as Vin highlights it being like I learned so many things from these other people, but I never paid to what Kelsier paid attention to what Kelsier is really good at, which is pushing and pulling. Those those two primary things. And this really accentuates his ability to do those things. And to kind of have that balance of force that mm-hmm. that yin yang of of the energy pu- pushing and pulling against him, it's it's an enabler of his personality, I think, in a big way, which is that he wants to be the revolutionary, but doesn't think that he should be the leader, and like has this kind of interesting ebb and flow, and I think that's accentuated here inside of this fight scene, even in a weird way, like it, its personality permeates this fight scene. Yeah, if if this scene weren't so serious. And just the the whole tone of this weren't so serious. A lot of this fight I would find fucking hilarious. Right. You know? Right. Like yeah. he's just ragdolling soldiers wearing like metal armor bits because he kinda needs something to use. I want to see and, James Gunn's Mistborn. Does that make sense? <laughs> like I want to see James Gunn do Mistborn and just like Allow those to be jokes, but also keep it serious. Yeah, like, because I think be that's like, what it is. Mash the dude into the pulp on the ground, hmm. but also yeah. propel the, propel everything forward. Like, yeah. yeah, I do love the use of the term "unfortunate" for the soldiers that get brutalized in that way, just out of circumstance. Yeah, there's even one yeah. time where he's not sure what soldier he's pulling on and if he's on his side or not, and he like yeah. takes it light on that guy because he's like, "Holy shit." I don't know what I'm doing. And I think that yeah, reaction is interesting too, where it's like you are dancing. I imagine it as dancing, I should say like the way that he's pulling and pushing himself. I imagine a lot of spinning, a lot of pirouettes, a lot of like, because we know that they're tied to the axes in the moment of where you're doing it in relation to something else. I imagine twisting in the whole, the whole situation being so difficult to read which is why he comes out on the other side of, you know, some of these people. He's like, sorry, I didn't mean to do that to you. Yeah. yeah he's it's so good. He does a lot. Yeah. Certainly does a lot. Pulls off a lot in these sections. We get a blink and you'll miss it moment where Kelsier just absolutely annihilates some archers. And this really gets into the benefit of deeply understanding the magic system. I think this whole entire scene does. And even the last chapter, the fight is so believable and is only not utterly nonsense because it feels so grand reality because we've been exposed to these bits and chunks and pieces of allomancy. We get to see them all used at once in, in a kind of a brilliant orchestra inside of the scene where we get to listen on the other side to the music. Yeah. I don't, there is nothing that makes me happier about this story than the depth of the rules that are built into it. Like the system laid before us is so entrenched in rules. It allows for us to completely excise, I don't know, cause magic from our vocabulary in right. like describing why things happen in the way that they do. Because like it, it is, it is not our physics. It's not our world. It's not the way our world works, but everything is anchored to a rule. That is consistent. And like, I, that's why I love this book so much, man. That's why, like, that's a major reason for why I love this book so much so far is because it's so consistent in the rulings. 
That is something that I think I got into in episode zero when I talked about Brandon Sanderson's rule system is laws of magic, the equivalent of the laws of robotics, right? And I think that that's why Brand's able to pull shit like this off is because he follows his own version of that, but in his construction of fiction. So as opposed to a tool of fiction, like the laws of robotics are inside of Asimov, this is external that influences the system. So... I totally agree with you. And now you've seen the results of mm-hmm. that sort of consistency over top of a story, right. which I'm not going to say is unique. It's not unique at all, no. but the depth of which there are a few people that are as consistent as Brandon mm-hmm. Sanderson in this way. Right. So there's a point later on in the story that it comes into question. It doesn't even come into question, but it makes me like, Realize that I don't understand how this works and know that they're like, just knowing how this has been written so carefully, I know there's a rule for it. And I understand that like it's rooted in something, but it's different. So I don't know yet. And that's the payments of probability have been set by your expectation and understanding of other rules of the system. So because you you know how the eight basic elementic metals work, you're like, oh, there's a new 11th metal and maybe something else introduced. Well, I don't understand it right now. I understand that everything else has been so well explained that I believe that it could fit. Yeah, yeah. I'll I'll get to it when we get there. It's the right. uh, it's the point where yeah yeah it's the point where Vin is forced to burn another metal that extinguishes everything else. Right, and that's that comes in like it brings into question how do the things internally work within the system like within somebody's body, and also does that metal have an alloy? Well, there's that, but that's less to do with the actual properties mean? of what's happening right now. Yeah, right. I'm j- I'm just saying, like, in general, any metal burned, we've learned, has an alloy. So it's, so if far, there's that, yeah. is there the opposite metal that might fill you with everything? Yeah. Probably. I don't know. It's, it's an interesting thing. So Ham finally makes his way over to Renew, Spook, and some of the other prisoners of his house. When Ellen steps into frame looking for Villette, accosting Renew and holding him back while he's stabbed in the back by the Inquisitor. But I think one of the important things that happens in the scene is Kelsier's reaction to Ellen, where she says, I love him. She, Sorry, excuse me. She loves him before he dives in and decides to save him from the Inquisitor that is clearly chopping through Renew trying to get to him on the other side. This- what kind of reveal would that have been, though? If it was, I love him. (laughs) Yeah, that would have been very, (laughs) a very different moment. I, I recognize a lot of Marius in, in Ellen from Les Miserables, especially this time around. I I was trying to pay attention to some like subtle things and trying to like pick up on themes and stuff that Brandon would have picked up on. And in Marius and kind of his friend groups and the revolutionaries and the people who wanted to be revolutionaries feels very prevalent here. And this feels like a scene in which, you kind of wish would have happened between the opposing forces in Lima's Rob. And we see it here. So I have never experienced Lima's Rob. Oh, at the very least, the I movie should. is the movie is enjoyable and a good way to like get to know it. It's not the best okay. format, but it's a good way to understand. Could do. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's fair. We kind of mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we, we have some like MCU flashes that we feel here as we're, we've been reading through this. But this book comes out pre-Avengers and pre-Iron Man. This book fight reads like an MCU style fight. It reads like this like very clean depiction of action that you can very clearly visualize. In particular, like the continual conversation that goes on between Kelsier and the Inquisitor. A little bit of like nagging back and forth and they're kind of having this like tug of 
of conversation at the same time that they're having the action happen. And it's, it's so well done and predates the MCU. Yep. Yep. No, I definitely had this thought though. Superhero movie cinematic feelings throughout this entire section. So I'm glad I'm not the only one. I know we mentioned it before, but like we came to those conclusions separately that like, that's the feeling that's evoked during these scenes. Yeah. And that's, that would be one of the toughest things. One of the hardest things that I think that you would have to do on screen is explain how the characters understand where metals are or where metals go and like their reaction to them, because it's not as though Vin like Magneto is holding her hand out and needs to pull it towards her hand. It's just like center of body. So it's like she gestures don't matter. It's what she thinks, what she burns and the intent of the direction that she pulls on something internally that matters. So do you gesture with that? Do you like full body lean in? Do you full body lean out? It's such a weird thing. That's like one of the weird translations that it's not that it doesn't work. It's that there's no explanation and something that you would expect visually, which you would need to figure out. That's, that's something that I think would be a component to like work on first and foremost. Yeah. That's definitely something that I think would go overlooked by a lot of people. And frankly, overlooked by me, in the thoughts of how alamancy works specifically iron and steel because if you're pushing off of something it's not it it's not like magneto yeah like that's the hard part to your hand your hands don't fucking matter your hands don't matter at all and everything with magneto has all been like hand centric and if we're talking about metals and like pushing pulling and whatnot magneto is our point of reference because he's the guy he's the dude so but but even beyond that even beyond magneto within the context of the book you're dealing with them throwing things mm-hmm. and then affecting them. So they're they're coming from or going to their hands. So you don't think yes. about it not being directly connected to their placement of their hands, but right. it's not. Like Neo taking off could be an elementic takeoff, right? Where his hands are at his side and he's Superman launching, basically. But it doesn't matter that his hands are at his side or if they're up. It doesn't matter if hands are up or down, in theory. Mm-hmm. Right. Matrix, spoiler. Just kidding. Trick spoiler. <laughs> Neo can fly. In case you didn't catch one. Yeah, it's it's so interesting. There's though there's a lot though of- if we're if we're taking it that granularly, hand placement does matter because hand placement changes your center of gravity. If that's if that's the definition of Fun it's weird of to system. think about. It's really it's, weird yeah, to think about. Right. It's really cool though. It's so well defined. Hmm. Okay. We get brief flashes <laughs> jumping back to ben, Vin's perspective about the death of Renu, but also being told that he's a chondra and that they are not certain that it is dead anyway. Thoughts about the thoughts. Chondra. So we talked about this last week or maybe two weeks ago, mentioning that the chondra from the venture house. Ten I think soon. I meant ten soon. Ten soon. Yeah. Ten soon. Ten soon. Ten soon. I think it was ten soon. I think it was ten soon. And mentioning how it's similar to what we're seeing with Lord Renew, I'm not sure if I ever said that, like, I think he's the same thing, but I'm pretty sure I mentioned that he's utilizing similar principles. I think that's where I landed on it. It makes sense entirely now with the more context on that. They're both chondras. They're both the same thing. And we get more, more context on what, or more background on what that means. And that they're big, grown-up myths race, basically. It is. 
you know, big Crota Mistwraith. I mean, I think that's the point of what we're supposed to get. And we, we get a very, sim- I think at this point, it's meant to be a very simplistic explanation to those who don't understand because the more important information that gets conveyed later, you know, that, that becomes more important at the time. So this, this gets into the reason that we addressed the question inside of PJ's prediction, but not the reason that we answered it is because we don't have a holistic answer as to what a Chondra is yet, but we, we have a general understanding that whatever is going on with Renu is a Chondra. Right. And Tensoon's place is taking over the body of a servant within a different house is also that of a Chondra. So now we've got two different points of reference that can, at the very least, point us in the direction of the sort of necromantic arts that you talked about. I don't want to, I'm not strictly using yeah. that term, but you know. Yeah. But yeah. Yeah. And we also get basically. the origin point, which is big, growed up Mistwraith. Big, growed up Mistwraith. Kelsier, of course, finally manages to duplicate the Inquisitor. Oh, duplicate, not duplicate. Duplicate. Kelsier. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Kelsier. Oh, no. Finally manages to decapitate the Inquisitor after this brutally long fight scene. And then the Lord Ruler arrives. We finally see this man dressed in black with white accents and so well described, basically striding into the square. This book is often, I think, sparse with with details when describing people at times, but this feels just long enough between the rings, pale skin, young complexion, and his attire. He kind of embodies this aura of menace with a simultaneously elevated regality. What'd you think? So this feels like that stereotypical, really cool, big bad reveal in the best possible way. It reminded me, off the top of my head, it reminded me of, like, the introduction of Kylo Ren. But going back and, like, looking at that scene, it does not, it doesn't match what I'm thinking of. So I don't know what exactly scene, like, exactly what scene from what movie I'm thinking of that this is evoking that feeling from. But, like, I know for sure that there is a bad guy reveal that matches exactly what I'm feeling in this book, in some movie. And I'll think of it at some point, but to the same effect as Kylo Ren. To the point where I think of the Lord Ruler as Adam Driver. It's <laughs> not a bad casting, actually. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Weird, weird huh. tangent yeah. topic uh, as far as casting goes. How do you imagine Kelsier? Brad Pitt. I don't know why. Just really, fucking, I can't, I can't get that out of my head. Don't know why. It doesn't make any sense. It's not a good casting even. I'm just saying that like, there's this weird, I get this weird Tyler Durden energy out of. <laughs> I always thought he was black. Idris would be a great cast. He's too, old. He's too, He's old. too old. He's too old. That's He's too old. He's too old. That's a good. But question. in the movie Concrete Cowboy, it's Idris Elba's nephew. What's his name? Caleb McLaughlin. Okay. Caleb McLaughlin is who I'm thinking. He okay. might be too young. He might be too young, but I think you could make him look a little bit lo- a little bit older. That's who I think of. I think by the time this gets going, I think you might be you might be onto something with that casting. Also, if you haven't seen Concrete Cowboy, absolutely watch it. So I had actually seen him in Stranger Things, and I didn't know it. Oh, he's in Stranger Things. Okay, yeah, there you go. But gotcha. That's yeah. All right dig that but like i i was i was trying to like peg who i thought he looked like and i just went on like a tangent 
myself earlier today. So I wanted to see what your thought was. Brad Pitt. I think he's too old. I don't think he's that old. He's probably old. too old. I'm imagine like I said, I said Tyler Durden. I'm talking like 20 yeah, okay, something okay, year old Brad Pitt. That is like you know, 20 like, years ago. Not not current Brad Pitt. But like young George Clooney even. Like how old is Fight Club now? Is that like 98? 1999, I think if I remember correctly. 99? Yeah. 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 Point being 20 years ago at least. So, yeah. But like young I, there's some like suaveness and I'm, I can't disconnect it from the heist nature of the whole thing. Like there is a there's a version of this that exists. He's got to be he's got to be kind of a little bit thin profiled, but like muscular, thin profile, but muscular. Yeah, definitely. Which which is why I really like your casting, because I think that that matches really well. Yeah, I dig it. I hadn't thought about that. I do think of most of the other members of the crew as older like Breeze. I think of as an older man. Mm. Like Breeze, I imagine to be like. I think of him as like a suave thirty-year-old. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. I think of him as yeah. like sixty, like sixty or sixty-five-year-old. Really? Like really, I'd give older, like clubs, older I'd give dude. Clubs the eldest on the totem pole, maybe Dachshund. Okay. Breeze feels younger than than the rest, but not by Fair. not by a whole lot, given. But Ham feels like Ham feels like a veteran. So like he feels old. yeah. I I I wouldn't I would say like 40s or maybe early 50s. Yeah, that tracks for Ham. Yeah, but I don't know what it I don't know what it is. Club or uh, Breeze just feels Breeze and Clubs feel like the same age to me, and they both feel old. That's within reason. I mean, I don't. I'm not disparaging. I'm just thinking about like casting. I feel like you'd want Mm -hmm. it'd be more interesting to give this this crew a a range, right? Sort of give it a range. Spook and Vin naturally have a range. Kelsier's on the younger side, and I think everyone else might tend to be older or close. And I think Breeze is the closest to Kelsier in age because they butt heads the most often, and they're often the the two highest complainers. So I think of that as like a, a symptom of youth in okay. my head. And everyone else feels wise, but they they feel more youthful in that way. But interesting. Okay, that just my take. It's not you know. No, I mean yeah. it'd be interesting to see what. Brandon has in mind with these that would be a really good question that would be totally a Brandon question of like who would you cast as these folks and again written in 06 he probably had a completely different cast list than he might have now yeah oh man yeah fuck 06 Brad Pitt makes fucking sense (laughs) like (laughs) within reason like he's within reason even Idris Elba is within reason in a similar way yeah, fuck, because he's so good in the wire. Anyway, we're going to shut up about that. <laughs> we have an important topic to talk about, which is we get to Kelsier's death and the Lord Ruler walking through this crowd impaled by two spears, one man screaming, stabbing him for his wife, another screaming, stabbing him for the crowd. Just doesn't so fucking, fucking brutal. <laughs> he, it's he such just, a brutal just, scene. He just keeps walking, ignoring them, ignoring all the people trying to pile onto him. And shrugs them off without ever really acknowledging them. Doesn't even like push them. Like doesn't even use allomancy on them in that way. He strides towards Kelsier. Kelsier delivers his lines that clearly feel prepared on his own in grandiose and rebellious fashion. But you can't kill me, Lord Tyrant. I represent the thing that you have never been able to kill. I represent hope. And he is then promptly backhanded so hard that he spins, spurting blood, losing an eye, all while the Lord Ruler then subsequently pulls a spear out of his chest, 
not caring about it again, indifferent to the pain, indifferent to whatever else this is, and slams it down through Kelsier before proclaiming for the executions to begin. This is a fucking brutal scene. This is this is the separation. This is the end of our mentor, the death of Obi-Wan. How'd this make you feel? Oh, God. I was so excited. <laughs> this yeah. so perfectly sets up our villain for the future. Like, this is the, oh, fuck, we're unprepared, turned up to 11. Like... I don't know if I'd say that this death is anticlimactic because it's not quite like we, we saw we saw the entire progression, but like mm-hmm. he just gets swatted down, <laughs> literally, literally swatted like the Lord Ruler has just been so shrouded in mystery for us that I wasn't prepared for how utterly oppressive he is, despite like in not even despite in spite of his proposed godhood, like his purported godhood. I got to the point where I was assuming that it was overblown and that like is just a dude. And he looks like, just but a no, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but no fuck. But this is, this is the young visage of David Lopan getting run over by a semi truck when he gets stabbed by two pole arms. He just doesn't give a shit. He's just like, whatever, dude. Yep. Yep. He's indifferent to the whole thing. He like, this is a moment that will go down in Ska history, in theory, because this is definitely the biggest uprising that's happened in the last millennia, the last thousand years. And yet, okay, Lord <laughs> <laughs> Ruler's like, whatever, <laughs> whatever, dude. And I think this gets into something that, like, Vin only realizes because of this moment, which is that he will just kill forever. He'll kill indifferently. He doesn't, it doesn't fucking matter. He was hoping that yeah. he's created systems in which people self-regulate as much as possible. How do you stop that? How do you topple that? Yeah. And what do you do when you topple it? Like, on top of that, like, he's devised an economic model. <laughs> like, it's a whole thing. I mean, there, there's, there are comparisons to be made that maybe blow it out of the water, but I don't think it really does so much. This is a man with an anthill. Like, this is a man with a giant, really complex ant farm. And the ants are suddenly learning that somebody is technically in control of them. But what the fuck are they going to do? And the man just sits there and he spins the ant farm in circles on its hinges. But the idea of, like, calling someone an ant, I feel like is overused a little bit. And in this case, it's almost perfectly apt. As far as what I'm understanding... Yeah. Like it, he feels so removed from the actual situation and so untouched by anything they do. And it's more of just observation than anything. And yeah, he can go in and like squish one ant that's causing problems, but like, fuck, what are they going to do? What do you fucking do? And oh man, does that make the Lord ruler a terrifying enemy? Especially one that we've like we humanized through the logbook in its own way, right? Like we've right. we've humanized this person over the course of time. We believe that he was brutal at the beginning. The logbook convinces us a little bit that it's otherwise, and we get these dissenting opinions about his godhood and like the nature of his being. And Kelsier's like, "Yeah, I don't think he's actually a god. He's not the sliver of infinity. What the fuck does that mean?" <laughs> and instead, now we're presented with someone who is literally unless this. Unless this visage of him 
is not actually corporeal fully. And like, like we see, we, we see them both side by side later on from ben, Vin's perspective of this old man, oh, the like this old, yeah, yeah. the old decrepit man. And then this guy who killed Kelsier standing side by side, like maybe one of them's actually vulnerable. Yeah. It's, it's definitely, definitely something that we're going to have to confront even worse, of course, from this death, this critical moment of, of failure and losing Kelsier as a part of everything is Vin's reaction, her screaming at his broken body after everyone has left and kind of fled in various directions, left there in the square. Her image of invincibility, even though she had down-talked and talked about the fact that they weren't invincible, she really meant she wasn't invincible, not that he wasn't, because she was. he was always the mentor figure. He was the one, she might have been saying it to him, but she was saying it to herself. And it just, it hurts. It's her model of heroism. They're dead in the square. And it's a tough, tough way to end this part before heading into the next, especially as Reen's voice whispers in the back of her head that he told her that Kelsier would eventually leave her from the very beginning of the fucking book. This fucking nagging part in the back of her head comes rearing back up. This trauma. You wish that kid would have never been born. You know? Fucking Reen. Fucking Reen. Will you leave us alone for five goddamn minutes and just <laughs> let us like let us mourn? <laughs> Give us a second, just a like, couple minutes, dude. Yeah, sure. Tell me that I'm shit and everybody's gonna believe me. Yeah, I, I fucking know. Let me just I think for a couple know. minutes. Yeah, it's such a tough way to end this part. However, we thankfully get to continue through. This is I, thankfully I or not. Thankfully or not, I guess, however you want to think about it. These two chapters, by the way, I I don't know that I've told the story. I read this this year upon the prompting of the vote for us to cover this because so many people had mentioned it, but I hadn't read it yet. So I read it back in July of 2021 for the first time and picked it up and started reading it or June rather into July and was going and hanging out with our buddy Bill and was up in New York hanging out. We were chatting we were up late one night and i hit this these two this two chapter section and i read it and i'm like it's one in the morning i'd been drinking i'd been hanging out whatever and i read it and i'm like oh well i guess i'm not going to bed now and so i just finished the fucking book didn't go to bed until like 2 30 in the morning i'd been listening to the rest of it but i brought the book with me just in case because if i would have I, I looked at the timer on audible how long it would have taken me in bed to listen to it it was like two hours and some odd minutes and I was like, instead, I was like, I'm just going to read the book and see if I can go faster. Because <laughs> like, I need to get to the end. I need, I need it. I need it. And uh, yeah, this was this was that breaking point for me for sure. I was like, if we lose Kelsier, what the fuck are we going to do? <sighs> we still we still get Kelsier. He's just well, he's the same bones. <laughs> it's just his, his bones. <laughs> he's got it's his bones. He's got you know? slightly different eyes. <laughs> but that's bones it. Bones are his money. So are the worms. with that we move into chapter 35 and part 5 believers in a forgotten world it's a really interesting part divider as we as we think about like the headers for parts as it is it's so it's so divisive do you have any thoughts about what this could mean what this could imply what is the what is the logbook chunk or do you mean the title or do you mean the title i'm talking about the title just the believers in a forgotten world like i'm I'm just on a thread of the lord ruler is 
an outsider looking in and looking down on this like curated world that he's observing. So like that's what that evokes for me, but that's just because that's what I'm thinking about. So well, in his I'm own not right, sure. he he's a believer in a forgotten world. He believes in something that existed before a thousand years prior, and in turn, someone like Vin, through the image of Mare and Kelsier, has been given this object of desire that is also a thousand years old in in terms of the sun being mm-hmm. yellow and the plants and the flowers being green and even having flowers to begin with. So, okay, I I completely flipped how I was thinking about that quote or that term, believers in a forgotten world. The way you seem to be describing it is like somebody believes in this forgotten world as opposed to somebody who believes in something and is like passionate about something in this world that's completely forgotten. Also true. I, I think I think both apply. That's why I think this part title is so good, because I think. My implication that I gave at first was the, like, Mare, Vin, Kelsier perspective. And I think the other part that we need to consider is the logbook perspective, right? The the Lord Ruler, as he existed prior, and the way that he keeps this room in Critic Shaw, he is, he, there's some nostalgic part of him that yearns to be back at that time, as he's, like, kept all of these belongings and whatnot, you know? Like, I think he's also mm-hmm. a believer in a forgotten world in its own right. And he... Yeah. Maybe he wants that back, and maybe he can't get it back. And that's that's such an interesting problem for a fucking god on planet Earth. You know? Not yeah. Earth, but you know what I mean. Planet something. Kicking it off with the logbook. I know what will happen if I make the wrong choice. I must be strong. I must not take the power for myself. For I have seen what will happen if I do. Again, tied back into the part title, this is an interesting read. Okay, so... My only takeaway from that, or my biggest takeaway from that, and maybe, no, I, I don't, I don't see a situation where it could be anything other than this. Realistically, I can, I, all right, fuck. How do I preface this? The fact that he says, I, I've seen, or I could see, I have seen, is that what it is? I have seen what would, what it would be yes, if I've I, seen what, what it will do. Yeah. What it will do. That tells me that Alamancy exists ahead of this, and he well, has. Sorry, sorry. I have, for I have seen what will happen if I do. Yeah. Either way, have seen. My assumption is Alamancy exists already, because I mean we know Fukumi, Farakemi, Farakemi, Farakemi. We know that that exists, but we also know he doesn't have access to it. This seems like something that would come out of exploring gold. It's true. It's true. We do know that our Lord Ruler in the logbook doesn't have access. No, this would be this would be exploring the present of some different choice in the past. Like this is an alternate present with gold. What you see, right? That's how it's been described so far. Past self, but it was like the same age, wasn't it? Like it was Vin's Vin in the same age as if she had gone through a different path in the past. Yes, you are correct that they are seeing different images of their own past, including potential paths that they could have taken, which is yes. Yeah. Point being, yes. Right. Which this seems to be separate and inverted, I guess, of potential paths to the future based on decisions that could be made correct yeah yeah 
if if this is actually him seeing something and not just him taking taking lessons from things that have happened before in the in within history so i don't know i i feel like he's actually seen the outcome and is trying to avoid it in like a time bendy allomancy sense okay but i don't know i don't know these powers well enough to really be able to make a solid prediction on it i i think you've got a an interesting read on the whole thing right like as you've stated the lord ruler in the logbook appears to not have ferrochemical powers right and so in turn and is frustrated by them right he's frustrated by the terrorists his pac-men having the ferrochemical powers and he does not have access to them right and he talks about the, the the sort of entire, he talks about a number of different things, but in particular, he seems focused on the potential of the future, which makes you feel like he's burning one of those metals that are, are predictive either himself in the past that he could take or something like a advanced form of ATM maybe or, or something in that realm that would make you believe that he's got some alimantic site. But perhaps there's also the opportunity that it's all just fucking prediction based on his own shit from the terrorist people, you know? Right. So, or maybe it's a vision imposed onto him by his, yes. his terrorist people that are right. Not his, yeah, him. he's not a terrorist man. He's a Kaleniumite, but Kaleniumite, Kaleniumite. I, I made up that term. He's from Kalenium, So he's a Kaleniumite. Yeah. Kaleniumite feels the most right of that form. Hmm. Kaleniumite. Right. It's like a, I don't know. Anyway, point being, it's more guttural. Yeah, and it's it's an interesting like little logbook entry for sure. (laughs) Vin's grief, of course, at the beginning of this chapter is profound. This is this is her losing the first person that meant to her something beyond her brother, her mother, the the sort of immediate familial relationships that she had, and arguably her father figure in a big way. And this is a depth of emotion that I think Vin has only begun to accept within herself because she's gone and opened herself up to finally accepting other people into her life. It feels like a very lonely expression of her feelings here, but it's so important to who she is and who she's become. She feels Kelsier's absence profoundly, kind of wishing to just sink into the mists and disappear. Yeah, this is yet again a great example of the growth that we've seen her come through. And like, what do you think she would have done in the, like when we first met Vin, if she was thrown into the situation and had the same familial ties to these people, but didn't have the like personal growth associated with it. I think she would have just fucking hid. She would have run and hid and driven herself even farther inward than she already was. And down in a way. And down. Yeah. Like, she she does a very good job of living with but ignoring Reen's intrusive like comments but i don't think that i don't think she did before i think that's why she was so reserved and so careful i guess with with letting anybody in it's it's by no means any anywhere close to perfect that's that's some of the interesting struggle that happens here with with Finn and mm-hmm. man. 
it's so hard to interrogate the way that she's changed, right? And the way that she's morphed and the way that she's adapted because she she's had to by circumstance of like situation with Cayman and everything else. And she had to change to adapt to those things. But on top of that, the way that she's changed since joining the group and how I think I totally agree with you. She'd burrow into the ground at this point to like hide herself away from mm-hmm. humanity and anything going on. And at the she at the start of the story was out for her own survival. That was first and foremost. It was it was about the things that I can bring. But at the same time, she did want to save her friend. She wanted to save. Oh, God, what's his name? It starts with you. She wanted to save her buddy. Right. Because she believed in some minor form of friendship and she had that that belief, but it hadn't really been proven. It was a faith in people. And we've seen that faith be extended and grown in a big way towards other other people and oh vin now hurts does so she's of course left inside of this grief and and Sazed shows up and has this discussion with her and i think he interrogates two things that i think are really important inside of the story we've mentioned it a couple of times we've talked about kind of some of these elements but one being that he believes this was kelsier's plan all along this is something that's reiterated over the course of the next couple of pages but the second being that of belief or faith. Belief, as he says, isn't simply a thing for fair time and bright days. What is belief? What is faith if you don't continue in it after the failure? And I, I think that this is a foundational kind of theme element that Brandon's really trying to pick at here. Mm-hmm. Why believe in anything if you don't believe it in the hard times? Right. Yeah, it's a great point. And through this section, I think Sazed is clearly onto something here. We get more into it later, but the idea that this was the grand plan the entire time. And there's more like there's more to back that idea up with the rest of the crew later on, but even in the moment right away, just with what Sazed said, it absolutely seems like that could be true inspiring a religious or at least pseudo-religious uprising also gives us background into why he was so curious about all the different religions from Sazed in the past. Because he was constantly asking him to pitch new ones. Yeah, right. But even, even those that he wasn't particularly interested in, they all had the common theme of being religions and therefore being something that tied people together. And something that people worshipped or like something that bonded everybody. And that's what he was looking for. That's truly what he was after. If that's if everybody's right in this sense, like in this sense that this was the plan the whole time was to inspire an uprising and to become to become a messiah. Like it, it feels I don't know. It simultaneously feels noble and manipulative i wasn't gonna say manipulative maybe i don't really necessarily think manipulative but maybe um egotistical which is kind of something that we've been mentioning with kelsier for a long time is he does feel like a bit of an egotist right like he doesn't Mm -hmm. you know he's not he's not the most wholesome and like like he always has a a motive you know another secret there's always another secret right it's kind of his whole saying so I and, totally I think I agree with you in large in large context and pretext about what's going on here inside of the story. I, I think that there's a lot of 
And I think I can agree with the idea of manipulative, but I don't think that was ever hidden. And I don't think that was ever even like pretended no, to be yeah, like, right. I don't think he ever pretended to not be manipulative because he was the entire very- point of all of these like gatherings and all these meetings were try to get people to agree with him and to join the, the resistance. And meanwhile, in the background, we've got breeze doing everything he can to orchestrate a soothing, like perfect storm of to getting people point, to join motivation and manipulation are, is a very fine line to walk. Like that's, that's the line, right? Motivation mm-hmm. and manipulation. And they're probably more on the side of a little bit of manipulation than motivation, but they're pressing on people's motivation, trying to encourage them to finally take action because yeah, I guess, can you call it manipulation? If all you're doing is pressing on already existing feelings. Yeah. I think like you're, well, you're magnifying them. Okay. So I don't, I don't think soothing is necessarily manipulation in the same way that we'd consider other things. Right. I do think what Kelsier was doing is more like manipulation than what breeze was doing. If that okay, makes sense that's fair as a delineation. Because yeah. all the, all that Breeze was doing was inflaming emotions to make them more prevalent. He was just pushing them up a degree or two, giving people the ability to speak honestly, even on subjects. But instead, what Kelsier was doing is manipulating people to believe in his myth, to believe in the legends, to like he's creating a story. He's creating a narrative. Yeah, but they're not wrong. They're not lies. But he's still creating a narrative that's still like manip- <laughs> defined manipulation like Good or without good or bad. I'm not saying that it's a bad thing. I'm not saying that it's a good thing. I'm just saying manipulation is in general the idea of changing something based on your own perspective. That's manipulation. So in that case, any sort of external motivation is by definition yes. manipulation. It's right. just whether or motivation not Motivation is when you agree with it. <laughs> <laughs> that's I mean, realistically, that's basically what it is. That's those are the delineations. So, yeah. Yeah, I, I, I think that's a wild part of human psychology. That's also why I really appreciate this book from a meta-read perspective is the nature of rebellion is kind of tucked into this whole thing. Yeah, right? Mm-hmm. It's good. It's good. It's, it's good. It's good. I really like it. That's why we're still talking about it. But in particular, one of the things that I just want to make sure that we refocus on a little bit while discussing this is you mentioned it earlier. Kelsier basically created the pseudo-religion. We've got this focus on belief and people believing in things. And the way that it's really important to like put your money where your mouth is in these situations. And that's where belief really matters and where this focus really matters is if you aren't offering up anything to sacrifice for something else, do you stand for anything at all? Like if, if in the hard times you do not double down on what you believe, do you stand for anything? I think that's kind of what he's getting at. Like he's not fully, but he's like belief is for the hard times and for the good times. And so mm-hmm. believe you should. Yeah, and I think ideologically, I believe, like, I agree with him entirely, but at the same time, I completely understand that when push comes to shove, you gotta, you gotta look out for your own neck sometimes. Even if it means the downfall of everybody around you, and even if you would ideologically disagree with that happening, something, like, there, there's something that's to human, human nature. I, I agree human with Human nature. I that's, yeah, that's, exactly. That is the survival fight or flight instinct pushing back. I think what he's trying to get at is that that's understandable and acceptable, but at the same time, like try to ground yourself. Not everyone can ground themselves, but that's the way that people should be. Not -hmm. the way that people are, but the way that people should be. Yeah. Kelsier just kind of seems like the kind of character that 
wouldn't accept that as a reason. No, right, which is why I think he's always pressing into different religions. Totally agree with you there. Yeah. Mm. So he's asking these wide ranging questions to figure out all these different things and then in turn, like pushing against some of them when he doesn't agree with them. So, yeah, makes sense to me. Yeah. We gather up with the rest of our crew to witness something magnificent that appears a belief, a faith and a true rebellion among the people. Doxon puts all the pieces together as he as he witnesses this all come together. This really was the plan all along, not some petty heist, not some small-time robbery, but instead the biggest real rebellion that could ever be mustered from the Ska against the final empire. And we see that manifest made real here through the martyr of Kelsier. Martyrdom. Yeah. This is where those light, like all the lights start popping up, right? And yeah, eventually entirely. Yeah, the, the torches. This There is some... It it evokes some very particular symbolism that I can't put a finger on as to like what to call it, but like it it, it is an illumination and it is a a rise of this myth and like not not a rise it's a a founding I guess of this religion I guess you could yeah. you could make you could make connections you know? to Genesis with with let there be light to a certain extent oh that's interesting that's an interesting comparison i hadn't thought about it that way from the rebellion and the lights turning on perspective um hmm interesting i like that i like that this yeah. is the birth of a religion in general as opposed to like, i mean it, it is also a martyr and it's right al- he is like, a mar- it, yeah. it, it is also a messiah but it, it it's strangely both in origin story and like and and martyrdom motivation so it's hard to draw that line and make a connection but i know i i'm positive that there is some real world allegorical connection that brandon was trying to make with You're with not these far lights off i don't think it's it's almost it would be dubious to not say that this is definitely Christian derived in mythology. Like yeah. it would be doing it an injustice to say that this is, does not have a basis in Brandon Sanderson's faith in right Mormonism. But yeah. So who's L. Ron Hubbard in this one? Iconography, but like you know, that's L. Ron Hubbard, right? Or is that Scientology? Scientology. That's Scientology, not yes, what not Mormonism. Mormonism uh, is Joseph Smith. Uh, Joseph yeah. Smith. Yeah. Never mind. I'm not not familiar. No one's well. expecting you to be a religious scholar here, PJ. So, no, but I, I think it. I think it'd be maybe insulting to say that this is completely divorced from his personal views. No, and it's it's within reason for that to be okay. And like it, still I think makes it's for great. a great story. Yeah. It's all about the story. Like beliefs aside. This is mm-hmm. a fantastic story. Yeah, that's fair. And I sip my beer. I think starting wars over it is a problem. <laughs> a wars over interpretation of it. Sure. Yes. Yeah, that's an issue. It sounds like a bunch of fandom members fighting against each other. If you think about it for too long and hard, you know, we're long and hard enough. Not a fandom. I mean, we're basically if we if we think about it, if we think about it in current day terms, it'd be like the extended universe fandom of Star Wars fighting the canon fandom. 
Even your Old Testament, even your New Testament folks. And, oh I mean, even if, if you go back far enough, it'd be like... The further I stretch this metaphor, the more... I the mass be. genocide of Trekkies. At Abrams' feet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Oh, no. Oh, fuck. But, like, really, humans pretty much operate on these same principles, no matter what it is. Some of us feel mm-hmm. very passionate about it. And people, like, I think... We have been inscribed in part because of religion, in part because of our fascination of story and the way that we fixate on oral storytelling. This is this is our drug. And so, in part, we can understand that. But if yeah. you fucking correct me on age or height again, I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> I definitely clipped right there. <laughs> yeah, there's no way you didn't. It's good. Okay. So... The rebellion's mustering, of course. Vin also begins connecting the dots as well, and as the crew take off to a warehouse where they find weapons that Renu had been buying, as well as Kelsier's visage being worn by a chondra, which is described as a grown-up, grown-up mist wraith, as you said. What a <laughs> sight to finally know, and I can cheers you to say that you were onto it mostly. I was I was impressed, as were most of our Discord patrons, that you were so onto this in that moment. Because I was not in my first read, um, and most of our patrons did not know or did not track this. So, I think that's cheers. Drink. Oh, cheers! You don't have to, but well, I'm gonna. I think, I think there's something to the predictions I get right. They, I think, a lot of them come from the fact that we pour over these sections a lot more than you would if you're just reading the book. Like we scrutinize things a lot more. So there are hints, and when there are hints, there's a lot more of a chance that we pick them up. There's an assumption to be made. Yeah. Like, for example, or not for example, but to to make the comparison, we took a year, more or less, uh, less, less than a year, but like 10 months to read the entirety of the Red Rising saga, right? Somewhere around there. I lent it to one of my, one of my buddies, and within a week, he had finished the first trilogy. Like, yeah, true. We spent we spent five months on those books and he read them in a week. And like just the amount of time that we spend in those chunks, I read I read each section at least three times, sometimes only two if it's a particularly busy week. But at least like usually three, sometimes four or five. So with the mist wraiths and like with with. The chondras and stuff, there are these hints that get dropped very, I would say, probably very subtly. And intentionally, though. Like, they, they're very intentionally. Either, yes. Right? Yeah. But they're small enough that you'd probably miss them if you're just reading through very, like, like you're just reading to enjoy something. Mm-hmm. And not to say that we're not reading to enjoy it, but. You get what I mean? Like we're we're approaching it differently than most people would approach these books. And I think that's why I pick up on some things more than some people would normally. I don't disagree with that in the slightest. I feel like we read with the writer, we read to the writer's intent, which is kind mm-hmm. of like the entire point of what we're doing, right? Is to try to like pick this apart at a very granular level to understand the stakes, the themes, the characters at a very deep level as opposed to I'm not going to say surface because I think people can get a ton from reading quickly through these things and pick it up because it's so dense with the information. But at the same time, we're picking out every single grain of detail for the most part. 
Mm. and treating them all with equal discretion versus, you know, my first read, I didn't catch a number of things, including the Chandra. Like, I, I caught the term Chandra, and I was like, that's fucking weird. And I caught, like, the idea of, like, Renew being suspicious. And, like, I, I had that concept, but I didn't draw the lines because I was reading faster than, you know, mm. we are right now. And I didn't have the same sort of granular approach in that read-through because it was my very first read-through. And now in this time, I'm like, oh, shit, the seeds are everywhere for everything. Fuck. <laughs> we gotta talk about it all. <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. But that's why, that's either why way, it was satisfying to learn that I was mostly right. Yeah, right. Like, it was, I didn't. I, I genuinely, was I wasn't. I wasn't sure. I thought it was a possibility, but I wasn't sure if the Chandra was the same thing that Lord Renew was. No, you um, right. But I, I was pretty sure the systems in place were the same. Like they were, they were drawing on the same sort of processes. So. Right, right. You had you had the general idea that while Renew, whoever Renew is or whatever Renew is, and Tensoon were similar, they're not the same. So the the thing that made me think that still hasn't been answered, and that's the fact that Lord Renew seems to have maintained his cognitive functions and his memories and his understanding of maybe maybe that's what it is. Maybe it's all the same brain as whatever con like maybe these chondras only live within this noble society so they understand noble society so well that they are able to take over a noble person and fake it but my like my hang up was that they had so much understanding of to begin with this of noble society to begin with it wasn't necessarily that it had so much to do with lord renew and his family it was more just the interactions between Lord Renew and his family and the rest of noble society. So maybe that's what it is. It's like, sure. There's a gradient. I was just going to, I was just going to make a fucking spoiler for red rising, but oh, yeah. there, there's something very aptly similar in red rising that I think, uh, I think, you know what I'm talking about for a one-to-one comparison. Yes, now that you mentioned that, <laughs> I am thinking about it, and I'm pretty sure I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Using the conjure in this kind of way, as we've been discussing back and forth, is an interesting way to have Kelsier also get in some final words through Renew, right? And mm. it's an explanation of sorts as to what he was planning and what he was thinking, and now that he's dead, since Renew has been in on this long game the whole time, he's been the one on the inside circle, really, this whole time. No one else seems to react knowing what what's going on here except for him yeah wearing Kelsier's so, body so that's this is the point where i just talked myself out of matt understanding and that like thought process of the chandra and like the old body and whatever like does he have Kelsier's thoughts and could he give more explanations of what was going on and i don't think that's true i think he just knows what Kelsier told him or her or it or whatever these chandra mm-hmm. are yeah, that's my assumption, is they just remember everything, and they are immortal or nearly immortal, and just jump from body to body, maintaining their memories, and are able to fake it pretty well. In that they're able to take over bodies, they steal bones, mm-hmm. they, they're bone thieves. Right. Um, <laughs> I mean, they're they're misrace. They're, right. they're grown-up misrace, as we said. So they're... They're 
fitting into society as these people that they're assuming or these, these identities that they're assuming. And I think they are able to basically remember more or less everything that they, that they experience. So they're able to very, very quickly and easily assimilate into the structure that they've found themselves themselves in. Okay. This is, this is like a, this is a, a thesis on the fly, if you will. Because until I started talking last question, I was under the idea that they took over the memories as well. <laughs> so, like, this is me trying to iron it all out all at once. Re-clarify, because it felt like there were some conflicts that I just wanted to make sure. There were. You there were, were sure definitely on? conflicts, yeah. because I... The more I think about things, Crossland, the more I talk myself out of shit and, like, realize that I'm wrong. Sense. Yeah. Interesting. Yep. I'm, I'm glad that we yep. get to talk about Condor now, finally, in a real way, which is very exciting. The letters, of course, so we, we get this conversation with Kelsier basically through the bones, kind of like you were saying. It's it's through the bones. It's a relayed piece of information, but it feels like Kelsier's final words. We get his true words and testament, you might call, will and testament here, left out for the folks to direct them in terms of the roles that he thinks that they should take instead of the society and really guide them into the final steps of the plan and kind of also lay out what he believes they will do in, in the next step of the empire effectively and peacefully, this kind of transition or idea of power. The letter to Vin, however, man is the closest that I get to tears in this fucking book. It is really reads like this final emotional letter, gut punch. And the last note there, there he depicts their entire relationship. He depicts the way that she's changed him in, in his own right. And you see that manifest in the previous chapter relating to Ellen and the way that he dove in to save her or him and the way that all of that has happened over the course of times. And it just it it hits. But especially in the moment at the very end when he signs it off saying that Mare always wanted a daughter. And that's that moment where it's like that's an adoptive thing where like he's always felt like her adoptive father. It steals your heart and it, it, <laughs> it takes it out it rips out and puts it in front of you. And it's like fuck dude like a lot of this a lot of this is emotional but none of it taught like i i love i love this book i love this series but this like really tugs on the heartstrings the hardest pierce brown is abusive to your heartstrings abusive in the way that he like pulls on everything in every direction all the time this is more sparing and you get this intense moment of just like a yank and this is a fucking hard yank yeah their their relationship between the, the relationship between Vin and Kelsier was so many things. It was, and we've talked about it quite a bit. It was master yeah. pupil, which turned into peer. It was from Vin's perspective, and it wasn't true, but right away it felt like it to her because of her untrusting nature. It was slave master almost, and that like very quickly got dispelled a little bit and there was, there was a friendship there. It was father daughter. It was, I mean, peer friend, father, daughter, master pupil, slave master. Like it was so many things and it matured so quickly, but in, in a way that was like, it wasn't unsatisfying or like right. we missed something or like it was rushed. It just, was a very very hot burning relationship and there were there were just so many threads of evolution within that 
relationship that it, it was such a cool thing to experience, man. And that's why yeah. I love this relationship so much, man. It's so it's so tough because at this point, Kelsier's dead. And so we know that we have two more fucking books and there's no more Kelsier. And that's a hardship for me to swallow at this point in these books. I mean, what is Kelsier at this point? We have his bones. We have his skin. We have his visage. <laughs> probably his voice. Like, he's still around. Kelsier's, Kelsier's just, a, <laughs> he's just a stack of bones. We're all just piles of bones waiting to dissolve. That's fine. That's fair. Yeah. No, it, but <sighs> yeah. I really, really appreciate that relationship specifically. I don't know. It, I don't know about the slave master comparison that I made. That's a little like, aggressive. It, it, it's 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 aggressive, but what what's the pared down version of that? Because Vin felt Employee, like employer, like that's kind of yeah, but but not indentured servitude, like maybe maybe yeah. maybe she felt she was like she bold, couldn't basically yeah yeah. Which I mean, what do you call that? I call it voluntold, but you know, voluntold. Like, yeah, that's yeah. fair. She's volunteered. I just, basically, yeah. It's aggressive. Indented. It's aggressive to say, you know, slave master, but yeah, that's the the feelings that I got off of their initial meeting from Vin's perspective of like I can't, I have to be deceptive in order to get what I want here, right? Because I'm useful and they need me, but. But I don't feel like I can actually just leave. <laughs> right. So. Vin's final mission of the chapter brings her to the conclusion that it's her turn to play her part in this whole thing. We get all of these other roles, and as, as she's able to read them, we've got generals, we've got masters, we've got lords, we've got people who are going to be in charge of the economy. And Vin comes to terms with what she's going to be. She's going to be the assassin. She's the one who's been trained to be the back arm and the one that's going to take people down as she needs. And in order to play her part, she needs to get into that center room of Kritik Shaw that Kelsier tried and failed twice to get into by any means necessary. What a fucking badass. <laughs> Hot damn, did I did I have a tough time not ending this week here? But I feel yeah! like it's better. Like, I, I had a tough time picking which chapter to end on out of these three, for the record. So, yeah. she's right, first of all. Every crew needs an assassin. Right. So, I pose this to you. Okay. Who's the assassin of our crew? Uh, Tim Olson. <laughs> no question. <laughs> You'd think he's the tech guy, but he's actually the assassin. Yeah, I can see that. With that, we move into our final chapter of the week. Chapter 36. I'll start off with a logbook entry here, of course, relating to Rashek. I've decided that I'm thankful for Rashek's hatred. It does me well to remember that there are those who abhor me. My place is not to seek popularity or love. My place is to ensure mankind's survival. This gets back to that like cold Lord Ruler that we've talked about a couple of times before. It really kind of tries to hone that in a little bit. What'd you make of this little short section again? So there's, there's a couple things that I want to know. I'm assuming... Maybe I can't make that assumption, but the assumption is that all of these passages are chronological, and I don't know if that's true anymore. I think, if I remember correctly, the previous, the big chunk that we got, the two big chunks that we've gotten from Kelsier and Vin, prove that it's not chronological. 
Yep, 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 yep. If I remember yep. correctly, proves that it's not chronological. So there's that. But it makes me think about, and I, I guess not being chronological helps my understanding of his thought process and his understanding of what he's going through and what he's going to go through. But the biggest thing for me when I was reading this was knowing that Vin has read this in its entirety. I just want her perspective and her thoughts on it because I mean, one, because she has the entire context and Mm -hmm. very explicitly we don't, but there are two dramatic irony cheaters in this moment, right? It's this, like you're saying, it's this from Vin and it's also Kelsey knowing what Condra are. Those are the two big moments in this book Mm -hmm. that kind of mess with me a little bit from a meta perspective. Yeah, exactly. But it, it's both from me wanting to know more about the context of what's going on here and also me wanting to know how and if, well, I guess if and these passages are affecting the way Vin thinks about the Lord Ruler. Mm. They're in very directly their thoughts. Yeah. Yeah. Because they seem to relate to whatever the chapter is, right? Yeah. Another strong opening to this chapter, I think it really shows an interesting symbolic victory here for Kelsier, as what Mare had always wanted was a sky to be yellow, for the plants to be green, and for flowers to be growing underneath vibrant various colors. This was in large part her dream, and using the yellow light of the torches to illuminate the sky feels like the smallest of massive wins for Kelsier in that dream upon his death. Yeah, I, I think this is Vin's way of finding him in these like post-death moments, you know, mm-hmm. like Kelsier said the sun was supposed to be yellow. So like, here's some yellow light. It's I, I think it's her maybe stretching a little bit and making connections where that's dubious to say that that's actually a connection to Kelsier. Like, yes, he inspired all this, but to say that Torchlight is the direct comparison to yellow sunlight as it's supposed to be. Maybe is a little bit of a stretch. I don't know that she's making that connection so much as we are, but she's I felt like it was her because she explicitly, in in her perspective, she she explicitly mentions it. Yeah, yeah. But I I think that that's just the the way it's like she's just looking for you know? That's what what I felt like. It It was more her making stretches to make connections to see Kelsier in these moments in order to yeah. be to be a motivation going forward and to like ground her in her actions and decisions. It's sad and hopeful, you know, like it's got that yeah. that moment of it for like looking back on those memories fondly as much as she possibly can and recalling all of the individual lessons. And this is just her. A lot of this is just like her sharpening those moments. Even I think it was in the last chapter and we didn't mention it when she's inside of the weaponry room she breaks off the tops of the arrowheads she connects them with the the like middle little metal chain links that she breaks off that she's then going to use as a trick in the next part but that's because she remembers how scrappy she is and how scrappy kelsier was and how much smarter you have to be than other people to really succeed and it just feels like it's it's executed in the same kind of degree where it's it's in remembrance of kelsier that she starts to think of these things and to try to like now that he's gone, someone has to be the next level thinker. Someone has to be, you know, ahead of the curve. Yeah. The tricks, as mentioned here, uh, that Finn uses it to bypass the Inquisitors are great, I think. It reminds me that she's always had to be the scrappy, 
street thief level person for so long and that this witty cleverness really comes through in a way that she uses the arrows and the powders even against them it's such a cool moment when she throws up that powder and all of we we see from the inquisitor's perspective that all of a sudden he can't map anything so he knows where nothing is because there's all the powder lines to everything It, it really leaves this interesting question i think about inquisitors and what their powers what their limits and everything are they feel more like alamancers kind of but not really but like kind of they do uh, to me they do i don't i don't yeah. see any powers that they're not aren't. registering different powers yes right yeah there's just enhancements mm-hmm. that make them a little bit more consistent i guess different so yeah. but you mentioned her kind of being scrappy yes and and i think that's a perspective that doesn't get utilized within this space so often and that's that really gets kicked off before she gets in when she's talking to the guards in front of Kredik Shaw. And oh shit, did I skip that? I totally skipped me talking about that. No, Holy shit. No, you're good. But that conversation really kicks off this chain of events of her being scrappy as a mistborn. And also which, being fundamentally different than Kelsier. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Entirely different. And like she, she's able to talk her way out of. She she leans on these social things that are happening, and uses alamancy to to soothe emo- riot emotion. I think she riots. I think she riots in this case. Emotions like gets these four guards to leave her alone and let her go through, and like they go and join this fight. So it's simultaneously recruitment. And subterfuge. Right. This, yeah, like, it, it's a perfect duality there of the, like, of what she needs versus what the crew needs and, like, ap- applying one thing to get both. And, like you mentioned, Kelsier would have done this entirely differently. He would have slaughtered these guards or completely avoided them if possible. Yeah, yeah. I think it's interesting to even compare them as, like, th- their tools and their tool, tool belt, right? Like, Vin thinks of the entire tool belt, and instead Kelsier has always acted like a blunt instrument. And I think some of that is the teaching and the lessons that were imparted to Kelsier versus to Vin. Vin got to learn from everyone, got this depth of knowledge of all of these other tools inside of Alamancy. Meanwhile, Kelsier is this blunt instrument of pushing and pulling, and so what's he do best? He does what he does best, and he's he's violent. That's what we saw in his final scene. He's great Mm -hmm. at being violent. And that's cool to see, but it, at the same time, it's not. It doesn't make a perfect Mistborn, which is yeah. what Vin is. I mean, she is, but I think part of it, obviously, part of it is the Her fact that she's gotten. Yeah, but that's fair. Yeah, but a big part of it is her training and her diversity in training, in that she got very particular training in each Alamantic group from right. different people who were experts at it. But at the same time, like, if these tactics were known at all, they would be used. Kelsier would use these tactics if there was anything suggesting that he knew about them. So, like, right. she she's is scrappy and well. she's yeah. exactly innovative and ingenious. Mm-hmm. So, dude, like, fucking pewter powder just getting blinding so cool. an inquisitor. 
but that also means that they understand more about the inquisitors that we than we do i don't think it does i think she was guessing based on she okay. makes an assumption that it worked at the end she didn't expect it to work so she it's like fair. she actually even like goes through that like motion where it's like thank god that worked <laughs> yeah I, I think she was just hoping for that in particular that trick to work yeah at the and very she least it on herself but like she could have but that's dependent on the inquisitor always having iron going or steel going or either yeah either right so i can see the uncertainty of can they see through it and can they like see past it but relying on it at all and having it be an option that it's off sometimes is tough to or can be turned off is tough to tough to believe that she would she would put that much care into it without with like just on a whim like maybe they can't turn it off and happen to be right but it does kind of feel whimsical you know in its own mm-hmm. way it, yeah that's fair yeah that's fair she's but approaching this at the very, with her scrappy assumptive nature you know at the very least it was really informative for us as readers right right getting to know the inquisitors better could not agree more I think that it it is a very interesting scene in all ways, shapes, and forms. Thank you so for my that. my one question that I'd like some clarification on, and maybe sure. I just missed it, but the broadhead arrow, like the the arrowheads that she mm-hmm. has, small bits of metal attached to loosely. With, was it chain link that she uses? So is it just like clasped onto it loosely, so it can be like that's if you my throw imagination. It up, yep. Okay. My question is, how does she make sure that they're aligned so they can be propelled in the proper direction, but not reverted? Because they have to be going, like, they have to be lined up in order to push, but still be loose enough to be, like, to not pull it backwards if they get pushed on the other way. You know? Like, I'm, I'm trying to figure out how she could so reliably set that up. In order to be able to push them without risk of having them returned. That's fair. I think she did risk that. And this is one of those small things. This is one of the most minor of edits. I would have loved if there would have been a small mistake here. And one of them would have been like too tight or something. Because it would have explained that the rest of them were just set right. You know? Yeah. That That's a small thing. I think I agree with you on. But I can also... We can both interpret that there's clearly a fine line there that exists... That she just me- measured perfectly because mm-hmm. she is an Alamancer and can like she could have toyed around with this in theory. She's not going the, uh, immediately from the weapon room to Critic Shaw. She has time between A and B. But and I like I agree with the delineation of internal metals cannot be affected by Alamancy. I agree that that has to happen in order to like make the fighting make sense. But I want to know why. Do you mean metals that are inside of someone? Because that's yeah. different than internal metals. Okay. In, metals that are inside someone. Okay. Like, I, I want to know why that's Ingested the case. metals. Yeah. Yeah, or or even metals that are, like, piercing. Or, like, the, the Inquisitors that have metal just spikes through their faces. Mm-hmm. What makes it... What makes it internal? Not... Yeah. So no, difficult. I get it. I get it. Having internal I, being, I like... Right. <laughs> internal like a, means, like... 
you're you're doing something inside external means something else ingested to be used right but the eyes the uh, the eye spikes what are those pierced well it was the same as her her earring oh right yeah that she didn't have to worry about because it was inside of her tech piercing yeah why is that like where that's the only like it works because it's magic and that's how it works that i can like I, I don't understand. Maybe for now, but in that respect, fairly major component of blood is iron. As long, eh, yeah, <laughs> that's that. Like, ultimately, I think to the is point where he, if you have a strong enough magnet, you can manipulate you can fuck with people's blood. hearts. Yes, right. You can literally like make people have heart attacks. I totally understand. I think that's likely why, though. Like that's probably a part, a big part of the reason why is because then you have to explain this entire different biological system, and like you need to do this whole thing so, but i'm sure pj i am i can almost guarantee you that there is a reason here so but does that mean coin shots have basically infinite power it's a great question <laughs> if if one of the main components of their blood is the is the metal that they use are they first of all are they perpetually anemic because they're constantly u- like using their iron no reserves? so it doesn't even <laughs> in your stomach in order to burn it like that's a known that's oh, is thing. that? I'll say it's a Is thing. that true? Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. That's a thing for sure. Well, then then I don't understand the eyes of the inquisitors at all anymore. Well, maybe. Maybe maybe not. She breaks into the room and finds it odd, homey, strange, filled with old things, yellowing paintings and an old man in a chair who spins to see Vin as she explores this room. This, of course, is the Lord Ruler. Out of the options, out of out of options, as she's confronted with the Inquisitors also re-entering the room, healing themselves up, she burns the eleventh medal and sees two different figures appear: one a happy burly man in large furs, and another a smaller merchant, kind of aged and huddled over a little bit. What's going on in your head right now? Given the eleventh medal, given what we're seeing in the side of this inside of the deep chamber of Critic Shaw, what what what's going on? What you thinking? I mean, I think I mentioned this before, but this evoked feelings of Big Trouble in Little China and David Lopan very, very explicitly. The person in furs was the guy standing next to the Lord Ruler, like the old decrepit old Lord Ruler that was then pegged as the person that killed Kelsier, correct? Yes. And the like hunched so. over yeah. merchant dude was the guy standing next to the Inquisitor, I believe. I think so? That feels right. Yeah. Right. So it wasn't it wasn't two separate visages of alternate Lord Rulers. It was like one They were yeah. they were past versions. Yep. I made that mistake. Thank you. No, you're good. Um just making sure I read that correctly. You are um correct. So I mean, it makes me think there's something more to gold, like we've talked about, and clearly, just the way that Vin mentioned, there's something to the eleventh metal that's connected to it. It f- sort of follows the same internal external pattern of the other metals, potentially gold being internal as a means of reflection on an alternate, like Self. an alternate past. And the 11th metal being external because maybe there's a tangibility to it. And that's what I'm like thinking of the whole, the whole Mm. gold thing. I don't know. Well, we've been introduced to Allomancy in general, and now we've got this Allomantic theory, right? So like now we're trying to figure out where the shit places on the table. 
where where like which is the ally, which is the internal, which is the external metal, right? Like that's yep. that's what you're tracking right now is like, can I interact with that versus like a gold shadow I can't do, or maybe I can with a gold, maybe I can't with this other this eleventh metal. Maybe A team is in the completely wrong category. It's not the tenth metal, it's fucking yeah. something else. Yeah. A whole lot, man. <laughs> yeah. Right. Any other thoughts on the room, on the Lord Ruler? Anything else there? No, that's what I've got right now. Like we we've talked a lot about our feelings in general, but just fucking low pan. That's fair. Fucking low that's pan. Fair. Ellen's scene here sets up this strong foundation for him, I think, as a character. Finally seeing the opportunity and doing the right thing in the face of adversity. The adversity, of course, is accompanied by his despicable father seeing Ellen as a fall man for the family venture and so that Straff can keep on keeping on fucking piece of shit. But Ellen comes to this term and he's like, I can be who I want to be and I realize that I am also on the wrong side and decides to turn himself fucking in. Like that is profound on his perspective. There's there's a lot to it. First of all, Lord, like, Straff Venture, what an absolute garbage heap of a person. Fuck no that people, dude. <laughs> no character ever treats their child that way, so far as I can remember. That's sort of fucking, um, what's his name, that throws Faramir off the, like, burns Faramir alive almost? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, uh, there's that whole thing. That's, I'm saying that wrong. I'm entirely incorrect. You get it. No, I know what you're talking about, though. Died, but yeah. He's but He's alive. Never mind. It's it's kind of a win-win. Kind of, yeah. Ellen wants this position right now mm-hmm. for his path forward. And I think was kind of assuming he had to, he was going to have to fight his father for the opportunity to do this. And his father gets to like, just wash his hands of it. Like, yeah, fuck him for Using it as an opportunity to let his fa- his son be the fall guy, but mm-hmm. his son was asking to be this like in this position. He wasn't necessarily asking to be entirely in control of the venture household within the city of Luthadel, but he wasn't gonna push on that. Like it's separate goals entirely, and fuck him for his motivations. But who gives a shit at this point? Because it's what we need. Kind of. Yeah, that makes sense. It's what he needs for sure. Not necessarily what we need. Like, it's it's an interesting thing because like we, we as in like game. us, us within Ellen's. Yes, yes, right. It's exactly. Yeah, totally agreed there. I was going to say like that's it's really like what we want for Ellen. And it's Ellen following through in his philosophy, which I think is a huge deal for his character. Mm-hmm. This is absolutely him, this is him jumping in in our previous perspectives of him he was kind of like wishy-washy on the whole idea and we've only had him three times as a perspective and so this is finally him solidifying no i agree scott oppression has been a whole problem i'm gonna go turn myself in this is what we're gonna do to handle this and that leaves us in an interesting predicament with him so yeah oof we cut back from there of course because we're gonna <laughs> see the ranch to Vin <laughs> being forced by an inquisitor to swallow an unknown metal, depleting her reserves. Depleted of those reserves, she ponders the metal, like maybe a wizard might ponder an orb, and considers mm. that maybe the pairings of themselves are off to begin with. And we've kind of talked a little bit about elementic theory, but did you have any other anything else that you want to approach on the idea? Or on this um, metal that she has to burn? So this metal poses problems for me. Okay. Why Why am I constantly forgetting how to say f- fucemery? Ferrochemy. 
Farrakami. Farrukami. Farrakami. Farrakami. I want to know what the implications of this metal is with if it's applicable, because it seems like there's more or less. I can search this. This is so much fun for me. <laughs> a one to one like mapping of Farrakami and Alan. And how would this affect a physical representation of somebody's powers that are being imbued? What does that mean? What are the rules of how things are being burned? Because we know that it is a physical, like a physical quantity of a certain metal that is ingested that directly relates to the amount of that, that reserve that you have. So what does this metal do to those physical representations of that reserve within your body? Or is it just inhibiting your ability to access them and if that's the case is it temporary and like given the like given given enough time will that wear off and you'll suddenly have your access to the reserves again i ask that because i'm still assuming that vin will at some point be able to access the earring like says <laughs> it's earring that she swallowed oh okay <laughs> Because she, like, I thought she chopped she tried, it back up. I don't remember if she did or not. I thought she. I don't think up. so. Okay, maybe not. Anyway, yeah. I didn't. I didn't see that at all. Yeah. I don't. I don't, I don't recall. I don't recall perfectly. Um, I just, all I know is that she wasn't able to access the reserves that it gave her. Provided, yeah. I don't know. There's. This is a new thing. That seems to bend the rules that we've been presented with and ha- that we've been like following very closely. So I'm not saying that this circumvents the rules. It just means that there are more rules that we haven't had visuals on. That makes sense. That's I mean, that's a reasonable call. I don't. I and don't I want to slightest. know what the rules are. I want to know what the rules are. I, I feel that I definitely understand. Um, closely watching my DoorDash driver. Because sometimes they drive to the wrong fucking building. This this unknown metal, I think, is really it, it it poses this interesting question on top of the entire elementic theory, as does the eleventh metal, right? Like this could does this fit within the table? Does this not fit within the table? Is this inexcusable in its own right? Image sent. You know, I think I made mention of this earlier, and I wanted to correct a mistake that I thought that I made because of of people being critical of things that I've said or otherwise like small small errors you know small errors which we started this whole podcast episode out with i said that davidian was in charge of the steel ministry which was a slight mistake he's in charge of the canton of orthodoxy which is in which is in the steel ministry but he still kind of has an authoritative position inside of the political circle which is kind of what we discuss over the course of this this whole section but of course the inquisitors are on top of him they're chasing him and they're trying to figure him out to like push him out of the the inner circle here with the Lord Ruler. Up in one of the spires, we've pushed Vin up and we're, we're watching outside the semi-glass window above the mist and kind of near the mist as they entangle with a glass. And Carr, an Inquisitor, accuses Tavidian of not being judicious enough with the Ska women he bedded. This, of course, is an egregious error on his part that has led to this rebellion indirectly in the long run, and Vin being here, of course, to begin with. 
on on his word, the six inquisitors in the room on on the Lord Ruler's word, the six inquisitors in the room howl with excitement and dash across the room to absolutely eviscerate this man that was Vin's father, the last member of the noble line of Tekiel, full blooded noblemen. But who boy, boy howdy, boy howdy. So this whole scene. For me, makes the Lord Ruler seem even more godlike. Like, in the sense that these are all people that are so far below him. Like, they're basically just playthings or pets. I'm not, I'm not sure the right way to describe it. No, but I, I, it's not even that because it's more observational than that. Sure. It's not quite to the level of like just looking at ants or looking at a fish tank. Because he still interacts with them, and they still like are able to be- to bend his ear a little bit, but more or less, he's entirely removed from their interactions, and like he he's basically indifferent to their infighting. These these all these factions below him, be it the Inquisitors or the the Orthodoxy, the Noblemen, the Ska, like these are all just factions. And he's completely elevated above them. I can't tell if it's entertainment for him or if it's a means. Like he he mentions in the logbook that these this is like, I think it's the logbook. I think he mentions like this is his ability or like he 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 wants to preserve humanity essentially. Maybe that's the last logbook, like the one that we end on. I can't remember. I think um, that's right. I think it's about the sun, but yeah. Yeah, but no, that, yeah, it's different, but it, it feels like these interactions with these higher elevated levels of his, his populace seem to be more of a means to an end to make sure that the entire realm doesn't devolve into chaos and annihilate everybody. But he doesn't seem to actually care so much about, the individuals or the laws that they break. I think you made mention of this earlier, but this is a reflection of his policy with the noblemen, right? Like he, he talks about that explicitly here where it's like, this is fine. This happened. I do this every century. I hope that this happens every century where I encourage mm-hmm. it if I need to. So this is just a little bit different and I'm okay with that being a little bit different because it keeps everything else in line still. Yeah. So and it's less, less direct so- work for him. I said it four times there, but he is indifferent to this whole yeah. thing. Like, yeah, fine, whatever. Entirely, entirely indifferent. Yeah, he he's embracing his his own godhood instead of this moment. And that's so interesting, mm-hmm. especially in this revelation. And in like, this is the most we kind of see of the Lord ruler, right? Like, this is one of the specific times that we get to spend all this time with him. What what do you think of him and his reaction to to Vidian's betrayal and his lying? Right. Like, what what do you what do you make of that character choice? I mean, it was emotionless, man. Like he didn't care. Yeah, he set rules forth for the inquisitors of like this is when you can eviscerate somebody when you when you prove to me that that they've done wrong or whatever. But he didn't like he didn't give a shit about who it was that was being eviscerated. It was more that's why that's why I got to the idea of entertainment within it. Like this mm. is an experiment for him. I don't know. I don't know the right way to describe it, but yeah, I, I would disagree slightly on entertainment. I know that we just went through this a little bit, but like he's clearly 
he's not getting any joy out of this, really. Yeah. Like, he's not, there's no joy extracted here. It's mostly just, like, utility. All of this is utility. And he didn't seem offended by the wrongdoings. No, no he's just like, you fucking broke the rules. Goodbye. Yep. You are the weakest yep. link, but just the newest weakest link. Yeah, I don't know. It's it's an interesting concept, and I think it'll become a lot more clear when we understand the scope of what he's actually seeing and what he's actually like experiencing, if we ever understand that. But for now, he just seems to be on an entirely different field of existence. Totally. Yeah, he's in a completely different world. He's playing a completely different ball game, it seems, it seems like. And anything else, dude, I, I just want to open this up just because we've hit this like wide reaching section and there's a lot that we've talked about. There's a lot that I feel like even we could have dug in more on, especially given that this is only 50 pages. Anything else? I mean, between what we just talked about and what we've talked about throughout the rest of this episode, I think I think we've hit everything that I wanted to, to like mention. I'm positive. I'll think of things that I wish I said, but that's just. There's definitely the facts more to of pontificate it. on, but you know. yeah, but for now, I think we're good. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Then we move into the final bit of reading here. This is the uh, log book chapter for chapter 37. There are only three chapters that we're going to be reading next week, PJ, for the record. We've got two chapters and an epilogue. So is there anything more beautiful than the sun? I often watch it rise for my restless sleep usually awakens me before the dawn. Each time I see its calm yellow light peeking above the horizon, I grow a little more determined, a little more hopeful. In a way, it is the thing that has kept me going all this time. So this will probably entirely counter, like contradict what I just said about him being on, in the, on a different plane of existence, basically, between like him and his, his subjects. Mm-hmm. But... Maybe the fact that this is so inspiring for him and is pushing him to continue going in the face of seemingly insurmountable adversity and evil, like maybe this is the reason why the sun isn't visible like this anymore as a means to not provide hope for anyone trying to overcome his rule. And I don't know. I don't know the functions of how... The sun is perpetually red. I was assuming it was because the ash is just constantly falling and it's diffusing the sunlight. But who knows? I don't know. I'm not sure what to make of it. Given given my like thoughts on the rest of the story and the Lord Ruler, this feels to contradict that. Interesting. And I mm-hmm. hate that I have to say that so often. And it's just my phrase for thumbs up. <laughs> we'll move forward. Yeah, I, I mean, like, what, what do you say? It, I really wanted yeah. to also, like, bookend this. This conversation kind of spans the idea of the sun, the yellow, the glow, all of that being important and critical. And and there's kind of a nice undertone there, too, to the whole story. So, you know, it, mm-hmm. it just feels feels right, feels appropriate on top it of does. the components that you mentioned. With that, we are going to move right into our question of the week. Our question of last week, PJ, was... Favorite example of torture. Cool. Do you want to kick it off? Yeah. yeah, I'll kick it off with my own. All right. We got we got really really great like responses representation of yeah. like responses. Like, it's 
It was a great week for that. So mine, though, was the torture scene in The Princess Bride. And I know that feels like a joke answer. Kind of. But like putting the comedy, like obviously there's a lot of comedy to it. But if you put that aside and ignore the fact that it comes off as like a fucking cartoon, it combines torture for the sake of torture with like straight up human experimentation and like fascination with what's going to happen to this mind when I, when I like put the suction cups on him. Yeah. Yeah. Like it could be a real horrifying circumstance for torture. Like if it wasn't set up in a comedy, you know? Well, yeah. But even so it's a really cool commentary on, human experimentation and the the forward driving of science and how like what cost that could bring so that's, i don't know you know what an insightful answer you know <laughs> what what a good answer i'm gonna i'll i'll end mine i'll bookend this whole thing with my pick but we'll, okay. we'll move forward so artificer from our discord the book version of the hobbling in misery just thinking about it makes me cringe and my dude <laughs> could not agree more in in the in the movie pj have you seen the movie misery i've seen this scene i haven't sure seen the movie seen but scene. i have you seen need this to watch scene. the fucking movie because the movie stands up to this day i rewatch i my first watch actually happened in 2021 i'd only ever seen the scene i had never watched it i'd read the book but i'd never watched it i watched it this last year fucking holds up it's so fucking good wow wow wow, wow. Mm-hmm. that would come out today and would win academy awards for performances like it should but in the book, so in, in the movie, of course, it's you take the sledgehammer to the ankles. But in the book, she cuts his leg off. She cuts it off from the knee down. So like he's going Honestly, nowhere. Uh, and she's in I mean, cauterizes it. But then he can't go anywhere. He can't move the same way. I I feel like breaking it is more horrifying. Well, it starts Gen- broken, but then she cuts it off when he when he rebels. So like that's the thing. Like, oh, okay, 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 kind of okay. But yeah, right. So it's, it's, ow, God, <laughs> no, oh, no, stop it. Oof. Feeds it to the Oof. fucking pig. Oof. It's so bad. Ugh, good one. Good mm-hmm. one. Next up. Ivana from our Discord. Man, oh, I'm going Star Trek again. <laughs> Paralleled <laughs> with 1984. The Cardassians torturing Picard. How many lights are there? That's that whole scene, right? Like the mm-hmm. bright lights count them. And Winston Smith in Room 101 in the Ministry of Love. Yeah. 1984 makes me pained. (laughs) It hurts. Every time someone brings up, like, the the opposite ministries, I'm just like, fucking the Ministry of War, Ministry, like, Ministry of Peace, you know, like that. Mm -hmm. Man. Mm -hmm. George Orwell. What a dude. What a guy. What what a dude. What a dude. Storms, another of our patrons here, suggested... The gluttony, sloth, and lust deaths in Seven immediately came to my mind, but I actually think the worst is the time in Hannibal, I, the show, when someone is made to eat their own body piece by piece in a series of lavish dinners. It's that psychological aspect of torture for me. And fucking, I love <laughs> the Hannibal TV show. The Hannibal TV show is so fucking it. good and criminally underrated. I watched that over 2021. My... F- fucking nearly my favorite thing there were there's one other contender but for a piece of media like half a decade old that i'm i'm so late to holy shit was it good Mm -hmm. Uh, next one 
That's you. So Marcus Huntsman on Discord. Aelin in Kingdom of Ash from the th- Throne of Glass series. I am not familiar at all with any of those terms. We are going to be talking about Sarah J. Mass's Throne of Glass. Not you. You're not a part of this. I'm just kidding. But on the February 14th episode, no doubt that will that will be a part of our Valentine's Day romance podcast episode. Not to say that that is particularly romantic, but it fits into Sarah J. Mass's compositions. And there are some romantic elements that are tucked inside of that. So we will gotcha. be discussing it. It's inside of our notes already. Not that we've recorded that yet, but I know we'll be mm-hmm. there. So good call. I think from my perspective, I agree with that. We, we move into summit from our discord again. This is a red rising spoiler. I feel like I need to make it because I know where red rising is. This takes place in the third book. If you are looking to avoid the spoiler, skip ahead just a little bit for me. It absolutely has to be Darrow in the box at the beginning of Morningstar. Just knowing the months of physical torture he went through just to be left in darkness with only his mind is unspeakably horrific. This is such a fucking good call. I can't believe I didn't like immediately think of this. This is a terrifying version of torture that we talked about for episodes and episodes. <laughs> it permeates the second series. It, it creates our primary theory for Darrow versus the Reaper. This was my answer. But I can't just be like, no, that's my answer. So I had to th- think of something else. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah, it's fucking horrifying. Yeah. But if you want to hear our takes on, on all of this, you can go back listen and listen to everything to from Morningstar forward in the Red yeah. Rising series. Yeah, exactly. In our Red Rising series on this. Yeah. And then finally, our last finally, one before I go. Once again, Discord. Sharkbait. Patron. Our patron Discord. I think it was all from Discord this week, right? Yes, because I got the I got the Instagram post up so late, so I don't. Yeah, that's my, my bad. My bad. It's an issue with us releasing a couple days before we actually record. So yeah, right. Um, it's how it goes. But literally anything involving fingernails or eyes. Caleb poking out Xander's eye in season seven of Buffy scare, scarred me for life. But the best torture in a book has to be Reek and his whole situation in Game of Thrones. Yeah, I haven't read the Game of Thrones books, but from what I understand, the entire sort of arc with Reek is pretty pretty close to true to the books. Maybe not entirely, but like thematically close to true to the books for the TV series, and that was fucking awful. So... <laughs> His his character breaking is one of the worst things. Like it's incredibly portrayed. It is so well done by Theon's actor, but it is horrifying in, mm. in concept and practice. To round it out here, I'm going to provide one that I can't fully answer, but what I will instead say, because it truly is my favorite example of this, is there's a character in Best Served Cold by Joe Abercrombie, the fourth book inside of the First Law series. It's the first standalone of whom goes through a horrific torture and fundamentally changes them. And wow, there is no other example of a character changing in a moment that I have ever seen ever. I am continually blown away by this. That's why it's in my top five books of all time. And I can't like, I can't skimp around this one. That's why it's here. That's part of the reason that it's there. So 
Yeah, it's in Besser Cold. You have to read First Law. We're going to read it eventually. I refuse to not let PJ read at least the first four books of the series before the series is up, before our podcast dies. Just kidding. Well, hope never dies. Yeah, that's that's the plan. So. All right. So a bunch of bunch of sad down moments that we're ending the episode with on a down episode in general because we lost a main character and we're left in a really bad spot with Vin. Our question for next week is much better, but it's what's your favorite sacrifice or martyr? We want to know. We want to hear about your favorite plot sacrifice or martyr in any context. You know, the first Mm -hmm. one that comes to mind is the Terminator in T2. Like, you know, think, think about that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Imagine. Dream. Dream. Yes. Quite. (laughs) Next week, we'll be reading chapters 37 through the end of the fucking book. We're finishing our first Brandon Sanderson book next week. PJ, it's not that many pages. It's like 38 pages. It's not that I'm going to finish it like in an hour. You're probably going to leave here, (laughs) read it and be like, fuck. (laughs) Very excited for you to disrupt all of your own theories Mm -hmm. that you've already been through. It's going to be a great time. So that's where we'll leave you for this week. Thank you. As we do every time, Tim and Andrew, for helping us make sure this show exists. You can check out you can check out all of our links in the show notes. You can find our schedule, Patreon, previous episodes, our websites, all of our social media accounts, everything all in one convenient location. We also want to take a second today to thank our new patrons, Chip Jar Patron Caleb. And Jonathan Sisson, our new mixologist, thank you a million for supporting the show. If you would like to just straight up search for our social media accounts, you can find our Twitter, Instagram, and Reddit at wordswhiskeypod and our email address, wordsandwhiskeyshow at gmail.com. And if you'd like to become one of our patrons, patreon.com slash wordsandwhiskey. Thank you so much for your support. It really means the world to us. We can't wait to wrap up this book with you next week. 